Do we have everybody here? Not yet. Right, just the last two were going to go front. Y'all get your snacks? No. Okay, sure, snacks. Over there. Go ahead and get a good snack. To change. Yep. Change the chat. I know. He's, he's coming up. Okay. So we have the team over here and most managers over here because they have a chair. Okay. Maybe not the greatest setup here, but all right. Yeah, you're all supposed to. Okay, see, Larry's being accommodating, but no, no, you don't have to sit. That's all right. Actually, the idea was to have two tables. We'll be rearranging, so don't worry about it. So that's good. Um, did you say everybody? Frank's sick. So we got everybody? So uh, before we get started, a couple of things. I am under the weather a bit, so I won't get too close to you. Um, I wasn't 
it's been on the calendar for a while, so um, bear with me. I may have to sneeze or take a cough drop, but uh, we'll get through it, or maybe even end a little early, depending on how soon the medication wears off. Um, so we'll see how far we can get today. Uh, the other thing that we're doing, the reason we changed it to here, in part so you're a little less crowded than in the Thai room, but also this room has been outfitted with video technology. Um, so we can take trainings and do web uh, broadcast things here. So today is our first effort at doing that. So that's why you have the microphones there. Um, and we've got some video people running around. So um, we're going to test it out just to see how it works. You all have the guinea pigs. Um, but the idea is that we can um, uh, we can put trainings in here and we can tape them and then have a library of trainings, particularly for new staff when they come on, that they could um, you know have the benefit of a full training. Even so, sometimes when folks get onboarded, we don't always give them you know the kind of training we'd like them to have. It's just let's do the minimum and get you into the field. So this way, we have a library of trainings that folks can then. Tune in and watch. Um, so we're going to try that today, see how it goes. Um, so make sure you're talking to the microphone. Uh, I don't, I've never done this before, so I don't know how it works, but we'll see. Okay? Um, all right, so everybody has a packet, I think, right? Okay. I don't know, am I supposed to, you need a packet? Okay. Uh, I can tell Lynn you need one. Oh, you need one too? Test, test, test. Okay. Oh, do we need all these microphones here? Uh, just to kind of pick you up real good for your presentation, because the important thing is going to be to make sure. No, that, that was good. <laughs> oh, no, I'd like to actually catch any uh, <laughs> feedback that's going on. All right, you want to keep that one there. Yeah, sure. Well, no, here, you could, we could. No, we'll, we'll. Keep that one there, but I, really, I, I think I, I'm loud. I think I can use my deeper voice and, and make it all right. Um, here, we'll put it right. Put that right there. Okay. I, I think it'll. Will the shirt tie combo look good on camera? You're good. You ready? Right. Okay. I think we're gonna. Get, uh, it says restart. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's that's good. Okay. Great. All right. So we're gonna start. We'll get you three packets. You can share them. Right. All right, so first off, let's um, go around and get introductions. I know most of the management folks. I'm not sure I know everybody else. So we'll go around and get introductions who you are. And tell me how long you've been with the department. Um, so I've been with 
So really the young folk we have, I mean, just a year, a year, Sean, a year, the rest of you have been around, right? So everybody had the training last February, past February, with Aisha and Kieran, right? I don't see a lot of heads nodding. In the pie room? You weren't there? Yes. There you go. DJ, you weren't with So right, so this is, uh, so we've got one DJ, were you there? You, weren't there. you were there, okay, just DJ, all right. So um, the reason I ask is because I designed this uh, to be more of a conversation about um, what you've been doing since February and really an assessment on um, change in the service delivery system. So that might be a little hard for you to think about because you have that training, but um, hopefully we'll, we'll get you included, DJ, um, and you'll be able to contribute. Um, but the idea of this training was really not to rehash what you've been through. Hopefully, since February, you've been implementing um, the model that Aisha and Kieran have talked to you about. Um, this presentation is inclusive of that material, uh, but that's because in the next two trainings, when we have the residential counselors uh, next week, and then the week after we have the PSR and the MHSS folks after that, um, this will be new to them. This will be their first exposure to talking about um, what you all talked about in February. The reason we're rebooting um, this is because uh, I, I asked the management group to talk to me about um, what was needed as far as how we move forward with our consumer care reform and our model, service model changes. And as we talked, it became clear we needed to make sure to involve everybody across the division and in across the branch, really, in discussing why we're doing what we're doing, what the impact we hope to have as we make these changes, and then make sure we're actively problem solving um, the, the model as we change it to make sure we're addressing all the resources needs and staffing issues and how well it's working with um, individual folks that we serve, right? So that's sort of the background for today. So this is the first of three trainings Yours is a little different than what the other two will, other three groups will get, but you will see some information that's similar to what you've had before. So, but the goal of today is to be really interactive and for you all to really have a good dialogue about what we're doing, what's working, what's not working, or any questions you have about what we're asking you to do, right? 
Okay, so uh, in your packet, just a quick review, um, you have a couple of things. You have a PowerPoint presentation, which we'll be going through. Um, you also have an agenda there. Um, oh dear. It looks a little different than there. I'll have to click everything. Well, all right, so if you look at the agenda, um, we've got the training objectives right up there for you all. This is what we're going to be doing it really is to talk about the care coordination model as a principle-based practice. And when we talk about principle-based practice, we really are emphasizing understanding what the principles are as a means to drive what you do. So one of the activities today is going to be for you all to think about what you do on a daily basis and how that evidences the principles we're looking to make sure we, we uh, emphasize in the department, right? So a real thinking exercise about is there things that you do that may or may not be supported by the principles? And if not, do we continue doing them or do we have to change how we do them to make sure that we're uh, in line with the principles? <clears throat> also, for you all to talk about what are the barriers to effective implementation of the model that you were trained in in February. And by now, we've had five months-ish um, for you all to hopefully be able to have a dialogue. The reason I'm doing the training today but also because I want to know firsthand really what the barriers are. Um, we've talked, I met with Larry and Frank and Deborah and Jeannie um, and maybe Kelly because she's on vacation still today. Um, but I met with them first and we had a really good dialogue about what they thought the barriers were and how we needed to address or make some changes. And then subsequent to that, this conversation is going to happen and you all are going to chime in as well because over the next three weeks once we get all that information together uh, we'll make some adjustments and tweaks and then from there uh, we're really going to look to implement this model July August and, and make sure that it's working and up and running. Okay. So those are our training objectives for today. Um, so you'll see I put on the agenda purposely discussion items again that emphasizes this is a dialogue. This is not just me up here giving you all information. Again, most of the information I'm going to give you here, you've heard before in one way or another. I've added a few things um, just to help us talk through why we're doing what we're doing and help you understand some of the drivers for this model change. But most of this information you've heard before, unless, uh, like DJ, you weren't in that first training, and so then you know, this is new to you. Okay? Any questions on the structure for today? Or that there is great concern and no one's going to talk. I'm not really sure. Okay. So, um, yeah. Oh, oh, here they are. Yeah. Okay. Oh, they just appeared. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So, first off, Let's talk about um, the department's uh, vision. And this is for care coordination across the divisions, right? This is um, um, whether it's de developmental services, whether it's mental health, substance abuse, this is what care coordination is going to be. I know in the past we've had differentiation between the board coordination, which is the DS version, if you will, of 
care coordination and really what we've had here in MHSA, which is targeted case management. Um, as you probably all know, targeted case management as a Medicaid service is really going away. Um, there's a lot of discussion at the state level that they're going to unbundle case management functions from various service models and instead begin to develop uh, a model of care coordination. This is uh, also seen quite a bit in, in how we're developing the, um, what is it, the CCCC, Commonwealth Coordinated Care Program, uh, for those duly eligible individuals. And we are providing a service, or some folks uh, will pay for the service. I don't know if all three MCOs will be paying for it, but we have enhanced care coordination, CCC. So this is, um, one of the drivers of this is, is, this, uh, is that program, right? But <clears throat> what we're talking about here is a facilitating, collaborative, team-based, strength-based process to support individuals in a person-centered, recovery-oriented service delivery system. It's a mouthful. But it is inclusive across the department of how we approach working with individuals. And of course, a couple things stand out here. Person-centered and recovery-oriented. Those are terms you should be familiar with. You worked in person-centered. Has anyone gone through the person-centered training? Person-centered planning training? Who's gone through? Larry? Yes, okay. Uh, and recovery folks, yeah? Okay. So these are not unfamiliar to you. And um, the idea is how do we connect or how do we sort of overlay system of care principles with those two, um, with those two ideas? So the drivers of this paradigm shift, right, and this is a big paradigm shift we're talking about, from simply just being case managers, which is I schedule appointments, I give information, I maybe even transport, make sure you get there, um, I make, maybe I'm a source of information for some of your natural support network, um, your, your caregiver maybe, um, or your authorized representative. Uh, we're moving away from that to this team-based approach, and it's really critical that it's we're talking about team-based approach here. The drivers of the paradigm shift really are coming in three sort of areas. One is service model changes at the state level. You all are familiar with the MHSS changes that are coming down the road or sort of already been down the road and we're in the midst of them, right? From skill, uh, what was it, mental health skill support services to mental health skill building services. Um, moving from support to skill building. And the, the, the conversation that's generated across the region, and uh, some of you may know I'm also the regional chair, so I, I hear a lot from Prince William and Fairfax and, and Arlington and Alexandria about how they're struggling with these changes. But a lot of concern across the region has been with MHSS changing, that that's been a way for lots of CSCs, lots of local departments to support um, living programs or, or residential programs for individuals with serious mental illness. And it's been pretty much a sort of unabated bucket of money that's just been flowing to us to support that. With the addition of a Behavioral Health Services Administration, which is the CHSA contract that Magellan has, this is our new four letter word, right? Um, so with Magellan coming in, um, MHSS and the service model changes together means that we're slowly restricting um, and targeting that service for a particular population with a particular need. I just heard figures, I guess, last month that 
previously, before Magellan was involved with us, we had about 14,000 individuals across the state that were receiving MHSS. As of a month ago, that number is 13,000. Anyone want to guess why the trend is down? What about Magellan? Right, why aren't they authorizing? Not just they don't want to pay, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, right? It's not fitting with their paradigm, why else? They want to see measured progress. They want to make sure that you are measuring progress. Why else is it down? There you go. It's also time limited and it's not ongoing. So once you show progress and something's been achieved, that's it. You're done, you don't need skill building. So what does that emphasize? What, what, what's the key here in terms of the skill building service as far as why, why do they get to justify it? Sustainability. They expect that we're working with these individuals and creating sustainable change or sustainable supports for that individual in the community. How many of us have time to do that? Anybody? Boy, there is no hand up popping up. I mean, hello, are you alive? Is this thing on? <laughs> um, right? Uh, right. So. Do any of you have time for sustain? Who here has done any activities with their, their individuals they serve to build sustainable supports? Anybody? Has anybody done that? No. Why not? Who did? Who? Our staff sustainable supports. Mm. But our staff sustainable supports. That's the, that's the key, you've got to think systemically, right? You're not. If, you're, if someone doesn't pay you, then you're not sustainable, right? So we can't be sustainable supports. And if you still cling to the idea that we are, you're gonna be out of a job. We'll be out of, we're gonna, I mean, we can't just serve people without someone paying for it, right? And that's the challenge when we talk about our service delivery system. We do need money. We, we can't just say, hey, we'll just, you know, <laughs> serve you because we like you or because you have no one else. There has to be somebody to pay for it. That's why it's important to think about sustainability. So again, I'll ask, who here has done anything around building sustainable supports for an individual in the community? Deborah. Absolutely. We, that's exactly what we're, we need to do. And if we have done it, I'd ask you all to tell me if you've seen it or if you've worked on it or if you haven't, or if you've tried, what are the barriers? What's not realistic? Well, make sure we turn on the mic. Turn on that mic. Make sure that's on, will you, Angie? Sorry about that. Population and a lot of the clients on our caseloads are sustained, uh, meaning they're completely um, stable. They're on their meds, working, um, and may, they, maybe all that they need is to apply for Social Security benefits. And some of them are just isolated. Um, 
so they I, just don't have other natural support. All right, so I, I hear you saying two things. One is some clients may come to us, some individuals may come to us, and they actually are already somewhat self-sustaining, mm -hmm. right? They're already well-grounded in the community. They're already, right? So in terms of developing natural support for them, not so much a priority because they come with some natural support, right? The key there is, do we engage those natural supports in our process, right? And that's where the team-based approach comes in. You have to be team-based if you're gonna engage those people, right? So that's one category. But the other category you're talking about there, Kim, is people who come for whom it is really difficult to develop natural support. Really difficult. Is it unrealistic or is it really difficult? I mean, do we put it on the table and say, well, let's do this, or do we not? Well, being culturally sensitive, some of our clients really do not want any natural supports involved in their care or treatment. Um, and some of them are just completely isolated because of several various factors. So some of them are isolated, but some you're saying culturally, if we're gonna be culturally competent, and you bring up a, a good point, which probably didn't know you were bringing up, but we're gonna talk about it later, uh, which is conflict when we have a list of guiding principles, and we have a, a sort of, you know, kind of um, enumerated outline of, okay, we've got to be culturally competent, we've got to be promote sustainability, we've got to be individualized and flexible and strength-based, right? When you have that number of, of, of principles, is it possible that one is in conflict with the other? Is it? I would say no. <laughs> and it's not because of how you understand those principles in terms of the work that you do. We never sacrifice one for the other. You always meet all the principles. If it were the case that you had principles in conflict, then we don't have principle-driven care. We have, we have idea-driven care, which is one singular idea, one singular thing. And if you look, and I'll show you another chart, person-centered, recovery-oriented, system of care, none of them have just None of them. So you can engage a principle-based approach already suggesting that, well, there could be some principles in conflict. You've got to throw that idea out. That's not acceptable. There are principles in this general category that work together, whether it's person-centered, recovery-oriented, system of care. It doesn't matter. They all work together. So you don't say, well, I'm being culturally competent, therefore we have to throw sustainability out. How you address sustainability and address cultural competence, that's the work of a care coordinator. Your job is to figure out how do I make sure I'm doing all of it? How do I make sure the team is addressing it? So for example, take what you're saying, Kim. Um, culturally, it's taboo to uh, you know, air your dirty laundry. I can't tell people what's going on. That's not right. People will judge me, right? Okay. So that means we can't go down, you know, can't knock on your neighbor's door uh, in the middle of a crisis because you don't want them to know that you're dealing with something, you know, that's very private or personal. Let's get at it another way then. How do you address then the idea that in the community you need a crisis plan? And you work with that individual and say, well, what works best for you? What's comfortable for you? If it's, if it's not knocking on the door to your neighbor, then is there a family member? Even if they're long distance away, can you call them to just get 30 seconds on the phone with them to help you know, sort of orient your brain as to what you need to do? Is that possible? 
the idea here is that the, the principles are never in conflict, never. You have to find a way to work with all those principles to achieve the out outcome, which is that facilitated team-based strength-based process to support the person in recovery-oriented, person-centered system. How impossible does that sound? Impossible, Sean? I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I, I, I do think it's a little bit more difficult than, than that because you do literally have clients that don't want anybody and don't list anyone as support. And if they're telling us that they don't want anybody as a support, I mean, I find it difficult to approach them and try to, to more or less not force them, but make them change their mind or have them see why they should do this. You know, if they don't want, I think it's their decision. If they don't want anybody around them or to know what's going on, then how are we supposed to engage in that, in that particular area? That's a good question, and that's something for supervision. And that's what you're, you and your supervisor should be talking about. But I'll tell you, the first, the first step is um, for you to realize that as a care coordinator, your job is to promote change. Absolutely. Um, and secondly, individual choice is not a statement. It's a conversation. So I think you're, you're, you bring up a good question, which is in supervision. How do I engage someone around this topic? when they present that they're really challenged and really don't want to think about or talk about. How do I engage someone? That's the right question. But we can't forego the question because we say, well, the individual says they don't want it, so I'm just doing what the individual wants. Larry? Yeah, I was going to Okay, well, I'm going to make sure the mic's on. I was just going to say, I think that and this is very important with supervision and how we provide it to folks. There's in the in recovery model, you know, there's readiness for recovery. And I think that sometimes when if we embrace the model and then folks are not quite to the place where they've embraced the model. So when in rehab, psych rehab, we do readiness recovery oriented activities. So it's this conversation, it's this interaction with its sole purpose to engage the person in the process. So they, if the person's saying, I don't, I don't want anybody in my life, then we, we know that they can't function. The reality is that they, they do, like everybody, they need somebody. They don't maybe need as many as another person does, but they do need somebody to go to that's sustainable. So how do we develop that? What does it look like? Who are the people around you? Um, we, you know, I could come up with 10 options that the client resists. The, the next thing to do is come up with another 10 or work with them to come up with ones that could be. And part of that process is being in their life and looking at, at what they do connect to. Right. And we found, we found these things to not always be the thing that we think. You know, we might go to family, and maybe that's not the, the right place. So they maybe go to the church or something, and then there's somebody at church that talks to them. Right. And then you, you try to work that. Right. Like, and there's a point there, which is that, so again, you all have to decide if this is impossible to ask or if it's just very difficult. If it's very difficult, then it means we've got to talk about resourcing. We've got to talk about time. We've got to talk about staffing and caseloads, right? So we've got to make a clear distinction between that which is impossible, which we'll never get to until we said you can try, and that which is difficult, which that's our job to do. 
So how do people feel about that? Does that make sense? How many times, though, do you come away from these trainings saying, yeah, that's impossible, I couldn't do that? I mean, take February. You had the training in February. What's happened since then? Think about it. We don't answer right now. But that's why we're here today, is to talk about what are those barriers you're experiencing, because the paradigm is changing. You can take MHSS, you can have someone be uh, eligible for MHSS for the next 25 years. Because if it takes 25 years, Sean, for them to get comfortable knocking on their neighbor's door, then that's what it takes. But boy, when they get there, they're done. Congratulations, you've met your goal. And we reached sustainability, right? It may take longer, and we may have to measure success more incrementally. But that's okay. That's the whole point. That's what's driving MHSS changes. Incremental change, noting progress towards an achievable goal that promotes sustainability. See how we did that there? You incorporate everything into that one objective. Your values, your principles, the outcome for the client, and how we allocate resources in our system. That's how you have to think. If you can't think like that, or that's a challenge, that's something you gotta get help with in supervision. And supervisors need to be emphasizing this way of thinking in their dialogue with you. Supervision can't just be, what's your caseload, who's, who's hot, who, who needs a resource, where do we get the dollars? It's also gotta be Sean's question, how do I engage this person? What do I do? Because every time I go to the door, they don't wanna see me. Because that happens. So that's the service uh, changes in MHSS. It's a means to an end approach. The end may come in 20 years, but it's a means to an end, right? Primary behavioral health care integration model. PBHIC, people know about that? Integrating primary, primary and behavioral health care. We will, in the next two years, become a behavioral health home for our individuals we do not, we will lose Medicaid funding. And you'll hear me reference quite a bit today, funding, because that's what drives system change. People either redirect the funds and then you see everybody go over there, or they dry them up and we stop doing a particular practice. So PBHIC is what CMS, Center for Medicaid Services, is promoting. We have to become a behavioral health home. Integrating healthcare practices. Uh, which includes behavioral health, mental health, developmental health, uh, and primary health care. We have to coordinate across di disciplines and make it really clear that we have coordination, right? So individuals with SMI have an uncharacteristically uh, high occurrence of chronic illnesses, diabetes, COPD, right? High blood pressure, hypertension, obesity. So they want us to coordinate care. So that's what's driving this. And then lastly, as you heard me reference, outcomes-based approach. People are looking at our outcomes. DBHCS is now starting and they're giving us regular data dashboards about what our outcomes look like. They're still, I would tell you, uh, 87 years behind the rest of the world, but they're trying and they're figuring it out. And at some point they're gonna get to what do your outcomes look like for the treatment and the dollars that you're, you're putting out there in the community. 
how many individuals are able to achieve their treatment goals? How many individuals sustain themselves in the community with less and less support from staff? Now, our systems of how we measure this are going to have to change, uh, but those changes are coming. And we're ahead of the curve because we are moving. The department is moving to something called results-based accountability, RBA. Program and branch managers are going to be meeting with uh, Ann Neffel, who's the Director of Outcomes and Evaluations for the uh, department, and talking about what are the goals and objectives that we can use to measure effective service provision in our programs. So from this level all the way up, it's changing in terms of how we have the conversation. Results-based accountability, if you want to uh, look it up at some point, includes three, it, three characteristics, very simple. How much did we do? How well did we do it? And who's better off? Very simple. <coughs> And are those outcomes sustainable? So these are the things that are driving the paradigm shift. Here's our approach to service delivery. And as you've heard me mention before, none of these approaches has but one principle. They have multiple principles. It's a care coordinator's job to be motivated and oversee a process that includes these principles that evidences these principles. And again, if you've been through the, the person-centered planning training or principles of recovery or the care coordination training, you know that the key to putting all of these things in practice is resourcing. How much time do you have? How much support do you have? What kind of support do you have? That's what you're here to talk about today. Because my goal is at the end of this day, at the end of this training, you're going to leave here not saying this is impossible, saying it's doable. And it's doable because I know I have these things available to me. And you can make use of them. You can see that they're all similar. They have different ways of saying it, but they're all similar. Flexibility is there across all three. Cultural competence, all three. <coughs> Community-based. Involved in, the, involved in their own care, client-directed, individualized, it's all there. So it doesn't matter from where you come in terms of your orientation, being principled in your delivery of care is really what's necessary for you to make sure you're advancing any one of these approaches. Anybody who's been through recovery or person-centered planning have any thoughts about what you like or don't like about those models? What works, what doesn't work? options in terms of national supports that maybe they wouldn't think of if you asked for such 
children, but as they tell their story, more can come out about, oh, well, this person right. has helped them at such and such time. Good point. That's a really good point. How many people feel like they have enough time to talk to their clients that way? Where they get to tell their story. You do? Say again? Some. Tell me what's difficult about getting the story from the client or the individual. What's difficult about it? What are some barriers? that is we have we also have a lot of clients who in particular the ones that I think about are the ones that we got from the nurses for instance that are that came that have been doing medication case management for years mm -hmm. so they've been stable more or less stable on their medication and in the community for the most part for a longer period of time so when they come to us you know it's that principle that we talked about earlier where we knock on the door we're calling them and they don't want to talk to us because they don't need in their opinion they don't need us they've been doing fine for years so why do I all of a sudden now have to tell my tell my story why are you all of a sudden asking all these questions about crisis and about support systems and about all this all this stuff that I haven't had to do for years and I haven't needed it so that's the that's the challenge that we all face is we do have clients that are, are that fit that profile that so let me ask you a little bit more about that. So are these individuals that have been in our mental health service delivery system, or are they new to us? So are you saying they've had mental health case management before, mm -hmm. and now yeah. we're introducing this new way of doing things? Like, what are you doing? Exactly. Ah, for, okay. So for decades. Yeah. yeah. Been All right, so how do you address that, Jay? Well, I think we, I would say personally, we are all working to have those types of differently um, how do you then address that with them so how do you sell it do you say yeah I know this is a real pain in the ass but you know higher ups are making us do it so you know could you just sit with me for five minutes and fill this form out or are you saying look um, tell me a little bit more about what's important to you tell me tell me um, you know what happens when there's a crisis is there something I could do no you're good okay tell me what you're good with Tell me what you're, because that's then a strength conversation. This individual then comes to us with a lot of strength. I've already got my support system developed. Um, great, can you have him come to the meeting? Well, I don't know, that's too much to ask. Okay, no problem. Do you want to give him uh, my contact information? I could maybe talk with him. And is that how it happens? Or or do you then go a third option, which is, uh, you know what, this guy's never going to go for it. I'm just going to do it myself and, and be done with it. 
No, I shouldn't answer yes to the first part of that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so then, uh, you should if that's what's no. happening. No, because I, I, because I'll tell you that's that's when I was on the front line. That's at times how I had to sell it, and and I had to make those statements in order to join with my clients and sort of say, hey, yeah, I know this is hard, and you know, can you help me out here? I'm just doing my job, and they respond to that. And that's fine, but that's not where you leave it, right? right? You, you then you get your foot in the door, and then you advance the notion, right? I think the second part of what you're saying is how it's being done, but it's not, you know, and I don't think anybody's saying that it is, but it's definitely not that straightforward or quick of a process. It's not quick. Thank you. That's the point. And I keep going back to this idea of resourcing, that part of resource is time. And so if time is, the, is, if you're finding that there are some individuals that require more time, your documentation's gonna show that. You know, you're gonna say, okay, well, our goal for MHSS is just for me to spend 15 minutes talking about what a crisis looks like. So help the client develop some insight and some understanding of, right? That's an MHSS goal. Once that's done, our next goal happens, right? So it's very incremental. So I, you're right, it's a, it's a time issue. But I want people to understand, as you point out, we've had people for 30 years working with us. For them, time's not an issue. And those clients that have been around for that oh, Make sure you get the mic over there. Speak loud. The ones that have been around, when you start a new conversation about something that's new, will answer like the first question. Like They know when you start something new with them, and they'll say something to that effect of, like, what is this now? And you're changing it, and you will get some of those answers that are kind of unique like oh here you go you're doing something new and what is this all about and so you kind of have to and know, how do you respond you kind of go in through the back door and like oh yeah, well you yeah, know I understand because they they're wise to everything that's going on and you kind of have to you know ease around the right because they know they right. as soon as you do something a little bit different they're like what are you trying to do now because they're changing something else? Right. I'll agree with them, but then I'll point out the benefits to it. Well, this right. is what I think is good about it, and you'll get this out of it, and you'll have more right. control. So. so let me ask you, you all are on the front line. What helps you with your individuals you're working with prepare them for that change rather than, oh, you're doing something new? How do you prepare them? And is there a way that we can make sure you're resourced to do that? I mean, that's the key, is how do you understand the role you have and get the, ask for the resources from the department to do it, right? John. Well, I think that starts from before they get to our program, too. Like some of the clients we got were unprepared to begin with. So when, when they were strong, it was, and, that, and they would tell us that, well, I don't know what I'm doing here. They just told me I needed to meet with you. So if it starts from the beginning. I mean, even if they had another clinician, a therapist or, or whatever. I mean, they weren't they weren't prepared. They weren't briefed. They weren't you know they right. didn't have this discussion before they got to us. So now we're starting instead of starting at step one, we're we're you know have to backtrack even further because now we have to orient them. Right. And and for a lot of clients, especially you know like those ones that we have that have been here for years, if they weren't if they weren't told this change and then they're thrown at us, they feel even more you know apprehensive about Good. any of this. So, and, some, and, and actually, some of my clients actually stated that they felt abandoned by the previous um, server who they'd worked with and just poor relationship with. Okay. Abandoned in what way? That they left because they 
when you talk, this is the shift between what and what. Well, we have some clients that were that were, you know, I have a, a few clients that were with the therapist for years, and when they were transferred to us, gotcha. Now there's the therapist, the relationship with their therapist is gone because they're not working with that person anymore. They're working with somebody completely new, and they may have been working. I mean, I have clients that were working with particular clinicians for for an extended amount of time. So right. the rapport that they have you know, was probably pretty good. So this is the, from the split of separating out case management from therapists. Mm -hmm. is, so that's, is that's a year ago or so, a year and a half ago? Medication from the nurses. Friendship house, friendship house clients as well. Well, friendship house clients, they started, well, were they getting case management from therapists? They, no. Friendship house. Friendship house, then we moved it out of, right. Got it, okay. So, right, they kept friendship house, right. But in some cases, what Sean's saying is they didn't see their therapist. So on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being worse, zero being potentially still no impact. Um, tell me, give me a number that says, that describes how well you think with the individuals you're serving, how well have you mitigated that issue? I would say pretty variable. The individuals? Programmatic. And, it's, and I think it's variable depending on what their needs are. So the clients that have our extensive set of needs are probably more willing to work with us because they're going to work with the, you know, the person who's going to help them meet those right. needs. The clients that don't, who have been with the, you know, the county. Don't see the reason for the process. Right. They don't see a need for the change, and they don't want to engage in the service because they don't, you know, they've been doing the same thing for an extended period of time. So um, it's, it's variable for sure. So we used to be at like, what, 20 people, 25 people? 30. 30. Okay. So... On average, what's the percentage of your caseload for whom it's difficult for folks? Give me a percentage. 10%, 50%, 80%? What would you say? Sixty or seventy percent on your caseload still have a very difficult time. Well, that to me, so that, that's okay, though. I expect that to happen. But when I say it's the ongoing difficulty, it's the people that don't open the door when you come up the walkway there. So would you say 60%, would you say? Okay. What about you? What about you? Pretty low. Okay.
North. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say maybe 50%, but I'd also say that there's a difference between, um, there. we may not have, you know, over time we may have mitigated some of the clients that are like, I don't want anything to do with the service, you know, what have you, but we still have a large chunk of clients that don't have, don't want to engage in any goals because they, they stable for you know x amount of years and a lot of those cases are like the ones we talk about that we got from the nursing clinic where there's you know to give you an example i have a client who um, is a 23 year old he's actively involved in his community with the special olympics with his former high school with parks and recs he works at costco he's been working there for six years he works every day of the week except fridays in which he has other activities he's actively involved in his church uh, his mom and his family is very supportive his mom you know handles everything for him. Dr. Clemens, the only service he has through us outside of me is he comes and sees a psychiatrist. So for me, you know, having that conversation with him is like, and his family, like, what do you need? Well, you don't need anything, you know, and they've had the conversation with me that, you know, they've been looking at private, you know, psychiatrists outside because they don't, there's no, there's no need for any of the services here. So it's difficult to have a conversation like that with, with a client who has so much support already, like Kim mentioned before, we do have those clients that came over with so much support, and to, to try and sit down and like, well, okay, let's figure out some goals, you know, what what do we, you know, what what do you want to achieve? Like, what are some of the things that we can help you with, or you know, that sort of thing is, is difficult, so. Well, then that's a client ready for transition, so we could talk but, about So where, though? Okay, so so out of the agency completely? Sure, sure, I mean, and, and so what you're, what you're hitting on then is you, you've got a, you've got an individual who transition phase. So things okay. are humming along and let's, so if they're saying we will consider going to a private psychiatrist, great, then we should make the referral and be done. Well, well but let me ask you though, Sean. But not to, to get on a particular case, um, but a 23 year old with a major wound, not a brief reaction, like basic or something like that, right? Yeah, and he's got an eye, in my mild eye. But here's the thing. You know, like I was going to suggest is that sometimes this conversation, like in the moment, everything's fine. But in terms of the course of stuff that people experience, everything's fine until mom and dad are tired of being living with them. Right? And he's tired of living with them. Or mom and dad die. Right. Or something changes. So the, so the question from a recovery oriented, like the long-term recovery conversation is about if if everything works out for you in three to five years where do you see yourself living working what do you see yourself learning or who do you hang out with those domains socialization learning living and working and if he's saying i'm going to be at costco i'll move up i'm going to live with my parents i'll be living with my parents i'll be uh hanging with the friends that i do hang with and, and doing things for myself um, and I have no desire for you know further education or training then I think you've got a referral right but but I think sometimes we don't have that conversation with clients because if he said I'd like a place of my own I'd like a girlfriend I'd like to get married and have kids I want to finish a degree in college or, you know whatever those things are then the question about 
those in Chapter 2 look in at. Then the question is, is any of that related to what legal help is? And if it's, no, I can get all those goals on my own. I have eight steps I see myself plotting, and I don't need, you know, care coordination or with this system. As long as I keep getting my measure and getting get on track. Then I think we have a sense that, like, they've thought through the, the longer-term implications. Right. Now, they can always come back. Right, absolutely. And my, my guess is this, you know, in the course of serious mental illness, this young 23-year-old, it's good that he's gotten to it early because he's got a better chance of long-term recovery. Right. But you would also expect that he may just be beginning his cycle of, you know, re-energizing and things like that. So it's, it's, like, it's like any diabetes. Some point, what you do, so so if you resource out, then it's like you have to follow up with one of these things happened, and maybe we can help because he's not right. going to get what you're offering from a private psychiatrist. He's going to get meds. Right. So but still, they, I'm not trying to like drum up business. I'm just trying to like <laughs> really no, have I, a perspective of with the client about like where right. the life's going. If that's the case. Well, and I'll put it in a broader context. Sorry, what you're talking about is, again, principle-driven care. I mean, so in the principle recovery, it's okay, so what's your long-term recovery vision? And I, what I'm saying, Sean, is then they could be in this transition phase, in, this, you know, in terms of care coordination. They could be in that phase where it's like, you know what? We're transitioning out of your service. We're sustainable for now. We're good. We have a plan in three to five years. This is what it looks like. Then we should say, yes, you should look at a private psychiatrist then. If you have the means to do that, you should certainly and that's okay. And that's the other thing. We have served people for up to 30 years, right? And we have people that have been here long term. One of our challenges is, and this is what's happening with the state in terms of all their service delivery systems, we're no longer for life. We're not guaranteed to serve you for life. We can't even be guaranteed beyond the next budget cycle to serve you. So we have to start talking with clients and individuals about what does it mean to transition out of our services? Because at some point, to some degree, you're going to. You're not gonna have MHSS forever, or PSR forever, or care coordination forever. I mean, there's gonna be, at a varying times, you may have different, different services going on, but you're never gonna have them all the time for all time. Right? Well, I mean, for the clients that, that continue to get meds here, they're going to have care coordination as long as they do that, correct? Because that's what we're under the assumption. If they're getting medications, they have a care coordinator, right? Mm -hmm. So for those, I mean, so technically, we may have clients that, that obviously are for an extended period of time. And for those, and a lot of those are what we talked about earlier with the medication case management, the ones we got from the nurses. So again, that conversation, you know, how do we transition? What does it look like for you to transition out of services? That's probably not going to happen because they can't afford to go private. They, so that's right. not the part. So their only option is to stay here and get medication. So you've got us, some right? that fall in one category and some that fall in the other. Right. right. We, I think we have a fair amount that fall into that category of they'll never be able to afford to go anywhere else. So their their only option is to get medication here, which means their only option is to, to stay with care coordination more or less. Which means what? Which means that, that conversation is difficult to have when we're talking about how we want to transition, how, what what how we want to help you, what kind of goals can we, because to them, their goal is to just continue to get meds and to maintain, and to maintain stability in the community.
which is fine because that's what they've been doing for you know, an extended period of time. Now, you know, we always have that conversation. I know, you know, not just myself, we always have that conversation. Like, if something happens, you know, or if you need something or if there's a resource that I can help you with, then sure, you know, we can, we can definitely have a discussion. Like, if down the road, you know, you want to think about attending Friendship House or something like that, um, you can certainly do that through me. But a lot of our clients are like, all right, well, you know, then I'll just call you when I need something, you know, or that, that's the kind of stuff that we get back from our, from our clients that, are, that fall in that category of. And then how do you respond to that? Well, I think we all do it in a, in a similar way. We, we agree with them, yes, that they can certainly call us when they, when they figure out, right, when they need something, sure. Uh, but we do, we do tell them that, you know, we try to meet with you at least once a month. Because to, to, to check on you know medications and make sure you're doing okay, some of our clients will say, well, I don't need that. Why can't you just you know meet with me at my doctor's appointment? We have a lot of those clients that are just like, well, you know I don't need to meet. Now just see me at my doctor's appointment when I come into my doctor's appointment. I don't need to see you in between them because everything is fine. And and or why can't you just call me, you know, in between doctor's appointments because the same conversation can be had over the phone that you and I are having face to face. Right. So it's a number of different things, and, and those are the types of reactions that we get. And sometimes it is difficult to be like, no, we need to meet face to face once a month because you know you're on psychotropic medications and stuff like that. That they don't want to hear that because they've been on psychotropic medications for years. And until now, I don't think, and, and I could be wrong, but a lot of the cases that we got from the, from nursing and stuff, I don't think those clients were seen on a monthly basis, which is why they're having a huge issue with right. why do you have to do this now. And a lot of them are smart. They know that when, when we see them face to face, it, it's going to be a chunk. You know, they're going to have to pay for that service. So you get that conversation also. No, we don't need to meet face to face because I don't want to spend that month. Uh, you can see me at the same same time as my doctor's appointment, so it's one visit, and you know, and we can take care of it then. So it's it's a number of different things. So then, so then uh, the solution isn't, of course, for you all to need to wrestle with science and tackle. Um, but the answer would be then was that's an indication we need to adjust our service model. So we could be proposing something for individuals um, that really um, isn't a good fit for them or us in terms of our resources. But there's a flip side to that, which is what happened in Bath County. And the reality is that if you do come to the public mental health service delivery there are, there will be eyes on you, and in fact, we have a responsibility. I mean, if you're you're getting this service um, for five dollars a session or whatever it is, we're you know we're subsidizing your care. Um, we do have a responsibility to make sure that an individual who's on psychotropic meds, who's got a serious mental illness, um, has the support necessary. Because what we do know, and we see a lot of this more in the developmental services world, is that when you hit a milestone or you hit a particular developmental challenge, you immediately come to the service delivery system and say, help, you need to fix this. And our delivery system isn't set up that way because we don't have rapid response. So what typically happens is you have a, a youth who's got a mild intellectual disability or a mild developmental disability, and the parents plug along just fine, and even though we might reach out and say, hi, let's give you some support for working. No, 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 I don't need that. I'm good, I'm good. Don't worry about it, we're fine. But then they hit 18. And at 18,
18, they're no longer eligible for the youth services, but they're not yet 21, so they're not eligible for the adult services in the DS world either. So there's a gap. And guess who gets called? And of course, at that point, we can't say, well, we saw that you know, three years ago we offered you the service, and you said no, so we're not going to help you. We can't say that, right? Our job, again, if it's principle-driven care, is to say, look, we're planning for the long term. Now, you point out, Sean, that there could be people that say, this is my only service I need, and this is you know, what I can do. And we can say, OK, then maybe we shouldn't give them care coordination, right? And that's a discussion I'll have with uh, branch and division managers that say, do we need to change the service model again? Look out, that might be changes coming. So don't, don't get too upset that things are changing again. But we may need to. And if we do, then that means that we put our resources in better places or, or in, in structures well, differently I think so that it, it, it can work. I think the primary concern for that, and we've had these discussions, you know, groups of division and stuff, is, you know, care coordination has a waiting list right now. Mm -hmm. On that waiting list consists of some people who have a lot of needs. That, that could right. very well be right. the active with our program. However, our caseloads are stacked, you know, well, have you know, people in them that right. don't right. require right. these services. So then we should have that dialogue. But be ready for these things. <laughs> Wait, oh, I'm sorry, I want to just eat you out. What about your caseload? How, how many folks, what's your percentage of your caseload? Oh, um, I would say only 20. 20%. I deal more with, I think, um, initially getting the case and wanting to build the case but them having so many cases and so many subtests mm -hmm. that I spend a lot of time trying to stabilize them before I can even start the team process, sure. which you know takes up a majority of my time. Okay. Well, it's required, but it doesn't have to be done by a care coordinator. I mean, that's the whole idea is we, we keep looking at, in terms of our resources, how to appropriate and um, allocate our resources in a way that makes sense, right? So we're working on getting more staff psychiatrists because it doesn't make sense for us to keep trying contract psychiatrists when they all fly the coop when they get benefits or when they get a better rate somewhere, right? So we're shifting those dollars from contract to staff psychiatrists. If, we, if what we're suggesting here is there's a cadre of people that need monitoring, say, by uh, you know, LPN, or uh, you know other folks that can do the med monitoring in a way that, that gets at the goal of ensuring these folks we have eyes on them and that we know we can anticipate crises with those. And maybe we should. That's a load that shouldn't be with care coordination. It should be with clinical and medical services, right? Well, so I think there's there's I think there's room for a change in the sense that there should be some flexibility when we're dealing with the clients. So we may have clients, obviously, that have been medication case management for an extended period of time. And like Larry was talking about, maybe it's the case that years down the road, years down the road, now something has happened in their life or something, and they require more intensive. So there should be the flexibility right. for us to, to transition them. OK, sure. they don't need care coordination at the moment. They just need this monitoring service. Sure. But when something happens, now we can transition back right now. No one's saying that that shouldn't be the case. That should be the case. We uh, Across our service delivery system, want people to be able to move where they need to move when they need to get there, right? So that's part of it. But again, the point is, we have a waiting list for care coordination, yet you have people that are there that you know really say, I don't need it. Um, 
and maybe abstractly, objectively, they don't. We do descriptive monitoring in some other way. But that means then figuring out what that looks like, right? So good, that's what we're gonna come up with today. But um, the larger point is that regardless of which principle-based system you, you come at this from, it all falls into system of care, which is the most broadly based descriptor of how to develop principle-driven care. Person-centered, high-fidelity wraparound, recovery-oriented, all of that is encompassed in system of care. And so the system of care values and principles are really what I want folks to understand drives what we do. And what I like about these principles is that it really talks to me, it, it, it talks about the connection between the work you do, the agency and the resources you have, and the outcomes we produce. That's the key. The other, you know, wraparound, um, you know, recovery-oriented, person-centered, they really speak to a process around how you engage the individual. System of care really speaks to how as an organization, as a service delivery system, we engage people and the outcomes that result from that. System of care really grew out of this idea that we had to put the right amount of resources available to the right population at the right time to produce the right outcome. This really drives decision making at the policy level and at the resource level. Person-centered planning, high-fidelity wraparound, and um, um, recovery-oriented really focus on the grassroots, what I call the grassroots level, sort of right there working with the individual, right? This has implications for our service delivery system. So that's why I'm saying we've got to look at system of care principles and values and say, are we adhering to these as an agency? If we are, then we are right-sizing our resources, we're allocating them in the right way to the right people, getting the right outcome. Because right now what I'm hearing is you've got a group of people that are having access to a resource that they really aren't necessarily making good use of. Now my, what's gonna be my next question? If I'm a resource allocator guy, what's my next question? What is that? How many people are we talking? I need, to, I need data. Right, everybody uh, at the manager level knows, come in, tell me what the problem is, you gotta give me data. I wanna know how big of a problem or small of a problem, how big of a resource, how little of a resource. I need data. So the next question would be, of the 120 people in care coordination right now, how many of those people are the meds only people that we're serving? Uh oh, Deborah's getting her pack. <laughs> She's gonna run, she'll have that answer to me by noon. Just so you're understanding that that's an important process that goes on all the time. Because we can't have this principle-driven care at your level and then it stop at my level or, or their level. So we have to be having that conversation and we are having it all the time. Which is why it seems there are changes all the time. There are. 
because we're still looking at data and we're trying to figure out how do we resource for the needs of our community. And the reason I think it's important to share that, is, even though it seems obvious, is because you all are the faces of that. If you don't understand that, if you don't have comfort in the fact that your agency that you work for is making sure that the right resources are in the right place at the right time, then you're not gonna sell any of this to your individual you're working with. Then the only line you have is, yeah, higher ups are making me do it, just help me out here. And I understand that. That's why we're having this training today. That's why we're having two more like it. That's why on my schedule I've blocked out, you know, all this time to make sure that I communicate it from the very top to the service level. You all need to understand that what you do is part of a larger process and in fact drives the process. <coughs> You're that important to the organization. What you do is that important, not just to the client or the individual, but to the organization. And if you don't believe that, if I haven't sold you on that point, then yeah, you're just gonna go and say, eh, help me out, buddy. And that's all you've got. So today's purpose, among what I've shared with you, is for you all to talk about openly, what is it that we have to do differently? Or what are the right size resources we have to put in place? But also holding yourself accountable. And this is important because this is what you do at the team level. You have to hold people accountable, including yourself. So I make sure that when I have this discussion, I hold myself accountable. It's my job to know the data, to ask the right questions, and to get the resources. If I'm holding myself accountable, you're gonna be much more comfortable talking to me about what's going on, and about holding yourself accountable. That's how it works. That's gotta happen at the team level, because it's happening at this level. I don't think anybody here is gonna tell you that I don't hold myself accountable. The problem is I hold everybody else as accountable to me as I hold me to be. That's the problem. It can be a little challenging at times. I get a little ahead of myself. I have really high expectations and I gotta right size them for where people are. And that's what you're talking about when you have that conversation with your individual that you're working with. Right size your expectations. Don't expect that the guy who's been working with us for 30 years has never done this is all of a sudden next week gonna say, sure, let's have a team meeting. I'll invite everybody I know. Let's have a discussion. That's not gonna happen. We do have to right-size our expectations, which means we measure progress incrementally. And we take action based on these principles. See how it all ties together? It's important you understand that because when you interact with that individual, you're bringing all of that much bigger job than just saying, ooh, I have a brochure in my file on my desk, let me hand it to you. That's not your job anymore, if it ever was. Your job is much bigger. You're change agents and you're driving service delivery in a way that's principle-based, that's gonna produce outcomes both for the community and the individual you work for. That's huge, that's a huge responsibility. Well, that got everyone quiet, okay. <laughs> In a group this small, it's very noticeable who doesn't talk, <laughs> let me just say. All right, um, so your first activity then is to engage in a SWOT analysis. 
or SWOT analysis? Yes, no? No. Okay. So SWOT analysis is something I did with um, the managers before. And this is really a thinking exercise. This is just to help you sort of orient to everything we've just been talking about for the last hour and 15 minutes or so. Um, I'm going to ask you to break into groups. I'm going to ask you that, because um, Deborah and Larry and Jeanette mentioned this before, that we sort of break into three groups, right? And mix it up a little bit. And each group, I want you to talk about um, and complete a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis with the focus of. your focus of um, attention on the service delivery model we're talking about, principle-based service delivery. What you've done in the last five to eight months, right? So I want you to think about when we talk about the team-based approach, the collaborative approach, we talk about um, sustainability and engaging individuals just this way with all of these values and principles voice and choice, making sure you're team-based and you're building those natural supports, you're focused on collaboration, you're individualized, strength-based, all of that. When you think about everything you've done to advance those principles by building your team, having your regular team meetings, creating your agendas, looking at the plan of care or the, or the treatment plan and make sure that you're advancing goals. I want you to think about what are the strengths associated with that process that you've seen, successes that you've had, Right? What are the weaknesses? As in barriers or challenges. What about this approach isn't working? And I'll tell you, it's not that it's not working because the principles are flawed. It's likely not working because we haven't resourced it properly. Or because we haven't trained properly. Or oriented people properly. Right? This is a list of basically to-dos. Things that we ought to address as we move forward. And why is this important? Because when we meet with the other groups of staff, who, by the way, never had orientation to this, right, which is a problem, as you all point out, because as care coordinators, you're up there trying to sell this to the team, and they're all going, what? <laughs> this is crazy. So we're, we've heard that. We're going to get those other groups of people in here and orient them, right? But this can be sort of your to-do list. Uh, OK, here are things that aren't working we should address. Opportunities. What opportunities have you seen come up as a result of this process? Or opportunities you've created for individuals you've worked with as a result of this process? Opportunities for the service delivery system, opportunities for the client or the individual, right? And then lastly, what are the threats? What are the challenges you see coming down the road that could be problematic for us in advancing a principle-based service delivery system? This is big thinking stuff. This is right, more thought than <laughs> this is more thought than you typically give what you do. And I'm doing this on purpose, not to put people on the spot, right? But I appreciate your honesty. Thank you. Because I again I used to be in your position. I was a care coordinator, I was a therapist, I was doing this kind of work. And I will tell you it, it is very difficult when you're doing that kind of work to think big picture 
when you've got the little picture right up in front of your face that really requires your attention. So one of the biggest challenges of being a care coordinator is holding both. You have to hold both because you are both at once that individual's you know, service provider or process facilitator and helping drive changes in our service delivery system. You're doing both. So I wanted to do this purposefully today to get you oriented to the big picture thinking and give you an opportunity in a productive way to say, yeah, here's what I know or notice about the process you're asking me to do. Does it make sense? Holding both? Okay, so I'm gonna ask you to get into some groups, right? Three groups, actually, we have plenty of persons, markers. Um, construct your chart, and I'm gonna give you until 10.50 to do the chart, post it up on the wall, take a 10 minute break and we'll convene at 11. Okay? Ready? Go. And get in a group that you don't even know all those people. Well, or you don't work with them maybe. Get yourselves right. Um, we don't need the microphones for this part, I don't think. Right?
no doubt heard, Virginia's in the news nationally quite a bit. Eric Cantor lost his seat. Um, and uh, Senator Puckett resigned, which ultimately gave control to the Republicans in the Senate. Puckett, he is a senator from Southwest Virginia in the state Senate, Virginia's Senate. Uh, and as you might know, the Senate was in a standoff with the House of Delegates over the budget. House of Delegates was saying budget without Medicaid expansion, no, no, no. Senate was saying no budget with Medicaid expansion. Um, and that stalemate was, was continuing, uh, which is what was possibly going to create a government shutdown in Virginia. However, within the last 48 hours, uh, Senator Puckett resigned his Senate seat, which gives immediate control of the Senate to the Republicans, 20 to 19. So they were able to create a budget deal, uh, I think, which hasn't yet come to the governor, but will, and it will not include Medicaid. The bad news for us is that of the 1,450 individuals we served that were uninsured last quarter, Medicaid eligibility or Medicaid expansion will not, which means lower revenue for us. It also means the some 2,000 individuals in Loudoun County, not yet known to us, who would be eligible for Medicaid and likely seek behavioral health services. I'm told McAuliffe will think about possibly uh, doing Medicaid expansion as an executive action. I'm not quite sure he can do it. He thinks there might be a political way to do it, but we'll see. So the bad news for us also locally is one of the um, one of the factors I was planning to use to gain appropriate attention from our policymakers and resource allocators was that Medicaid expansion was coming and that we as a department needed to prepare. Now that that's not there, I have to find some other good reason to tell them why we need as many enhancements as we're going to ask for next year. So we'll see how that goes. But as always, it's a mixed bag, right? Some up, some down. Um, so speaking of mixed bags, we've got Three very, very well thought out, um, a lot of analyses there. Um, similarities, definitely. 
into what we'll do next. But I think this is going to be a great format for us to do that. What I would probably say then is also, at those meetings where we, maybe if we, so we'll do, we're doing this for the residential branch. We may need to do it for the clinical services branch and for the, um, uh, the clinical treatment branch. And we'll do, we'll do in the same way, uh, a series of three to cover everybody. Um, I'll change up the information a little bit, but what I'm thinking is in each of those meetings we'll need a care coordinator to come and we'll do a role play and we'll talk about you know what it means um, this new service model so it's intensive it'll take the next four months to cover everybody but if we're if I'm hearing that's what we should do then we should do it we'll do it and we'll share the schedules and make it work um, but that's a great segue into the next bit of um, function of care coordination and the care coordination team this is information you've seen before. Um, so it's, I'm not, there are a couple of these slides I'm just gonna go through pretty quickly, but this is pretty, you know, you've seen it before, this is the standard, you know, care coordination is a process, not a service, and you all should make sure people understand you are here to facilitate a process. You are not here to provide a service. Your foundation of practice are the principles that we've talked about, and you're going, we're gonna have a little exercise later on where you're gonna connect what you do to a principle. And the purpose of that, just like the purpose of this exercise, is so you can share this with everybody else. Right? When you talk about how do I orient team members, how do I explain, well, you've just gone through a really great thought-provoking exercise. You know what they're going to say and how do you prepare yourself to hear it and respond. You know what the weaknesses are or the threats are. You know what the strengths of this process are. You've got to be able to sell it. And that's the challenge in part because we're in a system where they've done this way for 30 years, we don't need change, and in part because it does require more of individuals than they're used to thinking of themselves with respect to their role. So those are challenges, but the idea of today is to help arm you with ways and information to address that with your team members. Because you are the process facilitator. That is your primary function. And we'll talk about that. You are the person there to say, we're going to adhere to these Right? So in terms of team members for MHSADS, we have the care coordinator, as I said, you're the process facilitator. The MHSS and PSR and residential counselor, they all fall in that category of service provider, but that doesn't mean that that's their sole role. That may be their function, right? So they may function as a service provider, but that's not their sole role in Again, nothing new. You've seen this before, phases of care coordination. A lot of front-end loading on this process. A lot of engagement and team preparation. So again, you all should feel comfortable taking the time it needs, you need, to build that team. And with existing individuals who've been with us for 30 years, it could take three, four, five months to really build a team. And that's okay. You need to be, of course, documenting that and communicating that. But again, when it comes to MHSS or even PSR, those are goals on a treatment plan. It's 
establishing relationships, maintaining connectedness. So you all working in concert with them, you can take as much time as it takes, and that's the key here with respect to care coordination. You'll notice there's no set time when this process ends, right? A lot of evidence-based treatments will tell you, say CBT or other treatments will say, oh yeah, in 10 sessions, you'll get it. Doesn't work with care coordination, not with really any facilitated process. There is no timeline. If you're truly individualized, if you're truly flexible, there's not gonna be a timeline. What you should certainly get used to talking about with your teams is what phase are we in? And if, in fact, you're in implementation, but we're jumping back to team uh, development, then we've got to make that clear. I mean, you, this is not also, you'll see this isn't linear. This is, you know, when you're here in the process, you're doing some transition work, you're implementing, you're still doing some plan development, and there's still engagement and team building you're doing. So, again, the key here is to realize it's not a linear process, it's not a time-limited process, it is what it is, as long as you document the process, and that's one of your primary functions as a care coordinator, and your, in your role as process facilitator, is you document the process. What's working, what's not working, what phase you're in, what are the barriers to getting to the next phase, and addressing them. So it goes back to, uh, you know, I think about when I was a kid and you always had you think what you think, you're right. It was a great school, by the way. <laughs> but for you all as care coordinators, as long as you document the process, that you're adhering to the principles, and that you're aware of where you are in terms of the care coordination model, that's fine. As long as you measure that progress moving forward and identify the barriers, you're good. And reminding everybody that the care coordinator is not the sole problem solver. It's not your job to fix things. It's the team's job. And it's ultimately the individual's responsibility to engage the team. Their life. Right? Team membership. This is what it should look like. Or right? You've got uh, you've got natural supports here, or sort of what we consider to be, I think, sustainable, you know, peer support, individual, family member, caregiver, friends, neighbors, and then you have any number of all of these folks here that could be on the team. Now, one of the things I saw folks write over there is, well, you know, availability, you know, is a problem. People can, sometimes they make a meeting in person, sometimes they participate via phone. We did purchase, I think, some new phone consoles. Tell me. So you can sit in your office, you have a little hub there, and you can dial in as many people as you need. We do have a department bridge. So you can use a conference bridge to dial people in. I don't know if people need that or not, but you can. Huh? Um, the 1-800 number, where you dial 1-800, I don't know, what is it called? 1-800 like meeting or something? And you dial in, and you enter a passcode, and then you are hosting it. It provides better sound quality than if you try to tie up multiple lines on your phone, like line one conference, line two conference, right? So this way you can, this way you can uh, dial in like a 1-800 number conference bridge, the county has one, and you can use that out all the time. And just tell people, here's the passcode, dial in. So, 
Would Kelly have that? So you've got um, conferencing. So people can't get there in person? Fine. They can come and participate via phone. If you could say, can you do one meeting a quarter in person? Great. So you can be flexible, right? Get people there to the meeting any way you can. I haven't mentioned it much, because we all won't, you all won't be the beta users, but we are working on a, um, I think a really awesome tool that's gonna really make your job a lot, lot easier. Um, but we'll talk more about that later. Should be interesting. Um, okay, so that's your team membership. So, role and function. When you think about what, is, what does a day in the life of any of those team members look like, right? So your job as a care coordinator is at least a little bit to know some of the answers to these questions. So you can facilitate the process. You know what a service provider's challenges are in terms of, oh, I only have 30 minutes for this meeting because I've got clients stacked up. Or, I mean, your job as a facilitator is to take this into account as you facilitate that discussion and that team meeting. Right? So here you go, role and function. We were just talking about this, right? What does the role and function of people look like? What I want you to notice is <clears throat> there's overlap between the team members. There's overlap. So when you look, and this comes from, I asked um, Deborah and Jeannie and Larry to kind of forward me their thoughts residential counselors and ANTI, um, what we think their role should be, right? And this is what I got back, roughly, okay? So when a, when a therapist says, you know what? I'm the therapist, I see them, I don't need to be at the meeting. We need somebody who can come and help us think through how to address the issue with this individual. And I'll tell you, I'm a therapist myself, so I can say this. If the therapist doesn't think that what you're dealing with isn't connected to their treatment plan, then you're not a very good therapist. Everything you're doing on that team with that individual is impacted by my treatment plan, or vice versa, and they should be tied together. So it's the therapist's benefit to be there because you're going to get to see how your client handles life. You know, therapists are only as good as what comes in the room, right? We're only as knowledgeable as what the client brings into the room, right? So for therapists who truly want to see the impact of the therapy work they're doing, to participate in a team process like this and see. So if the therapist is working on somebody who's depressed, who can't verbalize or express their feelings, right? Would be great for them to be in the meeting and have their individual they're working with there, you know, express, hey, I really hate my care coordinator. Good job. That's a therapy goal. Good work. <laughs> I mean, so there's reason for any one of these folks to be in that meeting, if nothing else, certainly to report what they've observed in the course of their work because that's helpful to you as a facilitator. You've got to remember with the hat you're wearing as facilitator, your job is to basically know everything. So you can facilitate that group having meaningful dialogue and discussions. 
And that's absurd expectation. Of course, that's not on your performance plans. Don't get upset. You know, I don't expect you to know everything. But the point is, you've got to know just enough about what's going on with those team members to facilitate that dialogue, right? So having them at the team meeting, even if it's only once a quarter, and for folks who are only having the once a quarter team meeting, how often are you guys doing it? Once a quarter, right? Once every three months. <coughs> yeah. So it's once every three months. Not a big deal. So that you can have eyes on how this, how your work is impacting or being impacted by what's going on in that team. But you'll notice across the roles here, there's similarities. But I will say by far, the care coordinator has the largest task, which is to facilitate and coordinate that process. And when I look at your threats and your weaknesses there, a lot of them center around that idea that as a care coordinator, either I don't have enough information, right, or I don't have enough time, or I don't have enough help. Or people don't understand that it's the team's responsibility. And as a care coordinator, you've got to constantly remind them, okay, team, what do we want to do about this? And anybody who says, well, I'm not doing anything, that's your job, your responsibility. Nope. We've got to all discuss and redirect directly to the individual. How do you want to solve this problem? Right? As you see this, any surprises, any any questions or concerns about role and function of teams? These are just team members, residential branch that is. But yeah, Kim. You don't wait three months for your first team meeting. You have your team meeting up front right away. I know with existing folks, it's more like, okay, once you come on my caseload, I wait three months before I have my first team meeting. So compartmentally, I think that's probably the, the best way to do it. But um, with new individuals, I would say you have that team meeting right away, particularly if they come with that list. Because the goal then is to, for you all, first step one is assess. Who else is there that can help with these things, right? Because again, if you have to be the only one doing it, what happens when you get five new people, you know, in a week? Oh, you, you, you know, you can't manage this process and or do this process and then do all that stuff, right? So the first step is assess. So you have that meeting right away to say who's on the team. You know, talking with that individual, who else is in your life that can be helpful with this? Look at all these tasks you have, right? And they're tasks the individual has, not you, right? So. First is assess and have that team meeting. 
price with a new individual. I know that you're saying that's more difficult. Once you're at the meeting, that's prioritizing the task, right? One of the ideas in your team meeting should be that you are the last person to assign a task to. Everybody else, we go around and say, okay, so who's able to help with what, right? Because we know if we immediately offer, Say, hi, I'm the care coordinator, I'll take it. Well then, no one's talking about it. Right. Okay, great. <laughs> Meeting over, let's go. I mean, so we've gotta, right, you, you've gotta be the last person. Remember, as a facilitator, you're facilitating the process. You're the last person to take on a task, right? So I would say when you have that long list, when there's a referral, now I think you're talking about existing clients, I suppose, right, that have been in our system for a while and they get internal referrals, no? Could be both? Okay. So I think um, the first thing is you do have that, don't wait three months for that team meeting. Um, but if they are existing to us and they're new, <clears throat> um, what I would say is you meet with the individual and prioritize those tasks. And you talk with the individual about what they're capable of doing. And whatever they're not capable of doing or they feel they can't get to because they haven't built that skill or they haven't figured out, then it is, okay, how can we help this happen? And every time the person says, well, I thought that's what your job is. I thought I'm here because you're supposed to do it. You respond with, well, my job is to make sure you have a team of people that can help you with these tasks and get these things done. Because, of course, once you get Social Security, you know, you may have some interactions with the Social Security Administration thereafter, which I may not be around for. So you're going to have to learn for yourself how to go through that process. I'm here to help you with that, but I, I can't do it for you. Right? So that's the dialogue that has to happen right away. And, <clears throat> of course, it goes easier when you have other people that are there, they can say, oh, well, I can take them over there, and I can, fill, I can help them fill out. I go over there every night and check on them, so I'll just make sure it's the team are there. So you're, if you have a team there, you're able to say, you know, here's, here's what has to be done, here's what you want, or what you can do, right? And again, you're managing the process, you're documenting all that. So your job then is to follow up with, you know, Jim Bob, who's there, who checks in on every night, and says, okay, Jim Bob, did you get over the department, you know, uh, the social services? make sense but it will take time and so then then what you have to do then what you have to do is you have to say um, the in your first expect in your first uh, meeting with folks you do have to set expectations realistically right the referral source is making the referral you need to remind them this is a process it takes time so if there's an immediate crisis Or be patient, right? Because people need to have their right, their expectations the right size. Make sense? Yeah. But for existing clients, if you don't have that team meeting right away, um, meeting with the individual, talking about prioritizing those tasks, and really placing it at the individual's feet about, well, what do you want to prioritize first? What's most important? What are you able to do? And the minute I thought you were doing that, well, that's our opportunity to make sure our roles and our expectations are clear, right? Because the other thing that kills you is you, you go long, you go three months or whatever without having that dialogue, you get slammed as the care coordinator when you have that first meeting and they're like, well, I thought you were gonna do that. No, it's not my job, that's your job. You're the, you're the individual, you've gotta do for yourself. I'm here to help you do for yourself, right? So um, having that conversation sooner rather than later does help.
right? But it does have to be a team sport. It, it, you know, you just get one referral and you, you can be an individual, right? Any other thoughts on this? Now, again, this is just within the residential branch. We can add a column for therapist when we do the therapist training. But. Uh, I would say that particularly because us doing the assessments just cannons the answer of what actually populates the treatment plan. And then we're adding, you know, we find more times than not we're adding the other elements to the treatment plan so that they do have, you know, individual therapy or group therapy or whatever it is. Adding that on there. And I think one of the, the things that we discussed um, in our group is, you know, it's a lot of, of chasing other clinicians around trying to have them do their part um, of the treatment planning. For instance, not, not just adding it to the treatment plan, but you know, even if we <coughs> take that step and add it to the treatment plan, then there's chasing, hey, we need to write down the narrative for that given <coughs> intervention for the individual therapy or for the group therapy, or you need to do you know, your quarterly update mm. um, so that we are aware of how things have been going. You know, because even you know, when you do have those, those, those team meetings, Quarterly reviews aren't done and stuff like that. I mean, that's how we get left in the dark. That's how we're not um, up to speed on what on how things are going. And I think also just that bit of the accountability that a lot of times us as practitioners or our practices can tell them we need to plan all time because it looks like our numbers are up. It's just you know how to that sounds like some systemic issues. collaboration systemically in the electronic record world that that gets taken care of. Well, and just the understanding, too, that treatment planning is, a, is across the board for, for right. everybody. Right. Not just, I mean, I, not like I, we're not supposed to do any of it. Yes, I mean, not, right. we're not saying we have a problem doing treatment plans or populating treatment plans. Right, no, it should be on there. It does need to be that collaboration between right. all of the providers so that the treatment plan gets done in a timely manner and it's and it's done in a way that the client is, is up to speed and they're okay. Well, with. so I would say it should be facilitate treatment planning. Under here, right? Because you're not it's facilitating you're not a service provider, but you are facilitating that. So, and then we need to find out how to marry up the technology um, with that process, so that there's a way for you to do that without like literally pushing people down and saying, "Hey, sign off on this today." Right? Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on on this role and function? Okay. So again, you've seen this before. This is you know looking phase by phase what your elements are, what your what your um, you know uh, key tasks are in terms of all of that, right? This is from your last PowerPoint presentation. Again, this is going to be because I've only got one. This will be for the next group of people who haven't had this at all, so they'll be getting a little bit more in depth with this. Then we'll talk a little bit about person-centered planning and how that connects this process, right? So these are all things you've seen before. Then we go into plan development. Right? Key tasks. Let me ask you, actually, let me go back. Um, when we talk about key tasks, aside from what you all are talking about, Um, what other challenges do you find in 
facilitating the collaborative process when it comes to your key tasks that are systemic or that are um, internal to these departments. Besides the sort of EHR stuff, like we try to drop on what and fill in your blank because of the zones, quarters get bogged up, all that stuff. We have that. Are there any other issues? I would say wait lists. Uh, in particular, like if we're having a team meeting or discussing a need that a client might have, but your service of which provides that, you know, help for that particular need is available, but there's a waiting list. I mean, that's a barrier that we face also. Is we have a lot of programs that have wait lists. Um, you could refer someone to individual therapy, you know, and I mean, it could be a couple months. I mean, that's due, I'm not saying that, you know, that's an issue with the system or anything, but it could very well just be a staffing issue. Like maybe you just don't have the available staff for it. There's legitimate, I'm sure, you know, reasons for that, but that is a barrier that, that presents itself when we have clients that have needs that, you know, you're right, we're not supposed to, we're not the service provider as care coordinators and we're supposed to facilitate that, but that gets difficult when the, what you need to facilitate is not available at the time. Another one is how the team communicates with and discusses um, needs on the wait list. If the clinicians are dealing with situational issues or facilities issues with roles um, and they're not coming up to the team, they don't have um, So to, to preface that, <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of gray area in terms of what if, if I'm a therapist and I'm not sure that I'm supposed to do that or if I think that's not part of my job, it must be the care coordinator's job that has to do that. So there's a lot of stuff that gets sent to us, like like the Social Security disability paperwork because we're SAI automatically. Oh well, they'll take care of it because they're the primary. So one of the things we have to do is, well, we have to take notes because this is videotaped. Note to self. Um, one thing we have to do is be clear that the SAI designation 
is solely a function of the EHR. That it is not a function or indication of what someone does. The designation itself is misleading, single, cannibal, individual. Well, again, though, hold on, hold on. Single accountable individual for what? You are the single accountable individual for facilitating the process. Okay? Yes, you are facilitating the process as the SAI. And again, I would say, I would also put that in context that it's for with respect to the EHR, not with respect to our actual service delivery process, which is if there's social security disability paperwork, right, which I assume, because I've as a therapist, I've filled these things out, it's a clinical thing that says, okay, I got a, you know, here's the diagnosis, here's the presenting problems, here's how long they've been, right? right. Well, but the, the other side of that is, it could be seen as a case management duty. And no. if it's seen as that, well, but it is by some therapist. And if no. it's seen okay. as that, so they I'm don't do you, case management. So I'm telling you, and it's on videotape, no. <laughs> Clinicians complete that paperwork. I think you're trading for so you're, you're talking about the <laughs> you're talking about the paperwork that you're talking about with the with the assessment of their assessment. right their eligibility. Which the doctor then signs off. Oh, that's right. Okay, now that's a clinic. Right. More times than not, no, we no, fill no, out no, that no, paperwork. No, we need to know. Right. That's the issue. Is what Jeannie's talking about. Okay, I don't care if they get direct service time or not for it. It's still a clinical function. And your hour is a 45 minute or a 50 minute hour, which leaves 10 minutes to do all the stuff you're supposed to do in support of your clinical work. One of thing of which is that when someone needs an assessment, you fill out the assessment. So I understand maybe why people make that decision, but I guess I'm here to declare otherwise. The decision is that anything related to clinical treatment is completed and in the domain of the therapist. Which is that when social security paperwork comes in, and I will talk with Dr. Parr, and I will talk with Michelle, and I will make sure everyone's clear on this, they are to complete it. When they come through and when they complete the comprehensive assessment, that's where it starts. But this is a this is what they need to do is Seeing the client, you're assessing the client. Alright, so this gets to the this gets to the concurrent documentation issue, which needs to be attractive that we start doing that would be the CMHSA because it's recovery facilitating and it's very respectful to say, here's I get this social security and you have to make your case that you are eligible for disability and here's the things I have to answer and this is what we're gonna do right now when you complete your and that's my question. Right. What well spent 50 minutes? Right. Absolutely. And I think it's all, I think it's involved. Absolutely. So, okay, we'll take care of that. But again, there are two issues. We just solved the specific one, but the more general one is what does the SAI designation mean? And that is really with respect to the EHR and the sort of documentation process and the facilitation process, not the service delivery process, right? Okay, so anything else with respect to our issuer account? And by the way,
way, as we iron these things out, again, my expectation is you leave this meeting and you're better able to talk with people about what it means to be on the team, what their role and function is, and how you know you can best facilitate that process, right? I will make sure that the appropriate parties are advised of what I've decided or what I've, my pronouncement that I get into, um, and, and that'll be taken care of. But the, the point is that as we go through these things, it's critical for you to take this information um, develops that team and that sense of uh, collaboration as to how we work together. Clear role and function is essential to that, right? So you can find a way to have the dialogue that says, look, you know, my role is to facilitate the process, not to do paperwork on an individual that, by the way, I think it's been working with him for five years, the therapist has. So they should be filling this out, not me, right? So there's a way to, to navigate this, and that's the larger issue for you all as well. How do you have this dialogue without coming across as mean or unfriendly or you know non-collaborative, right? So you've got to find a way to do that. That's individual to all of you. You have your own way of working and way of relating to people. But I will tell you that effective facilitators um, do so or, or relate to folks in a way that's much more um, personalized and individualized rather than systemic systemic based, right? Just to give them an answer that says, nope, not my job, of course isn't gonna help. You've gotta find a way to say, thanks for letting me uh, be aware of this, I will make sure to get that paperwork to the therapist and have them complete it. Because again, that's your role, you're facilitating that connectedness, right? And your job would be then, if I were in Tim's shoes, I'd say, thank you, Dr. Farr, I will make sure that the therapist gets this paperwork. I was unaware there was a second notice. I will uh, keep you informed. Then Tim would go to Joe's therapist, say, hey, got this paperwork, Dr. Parr was asking uh, that it get completed. She's ready to sign off on it. Let me know when you have it, and I'll make sure to get it to her, or you can give it to her directly. And then I document, because I'm the SAI, and I say, oh, look, I just made sure to da-da-da-da-da. Done, okay. That's what a care coordinator does. What do you mean? I don't, I don't know what that means. Okay. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, If they have no therapist assigned to them and they still need the assessment done, again, that's a systemic issue. We can figure out how many people does that affect and do we need a process for that? Or um, is there a way for us to document in such a way that you all would be the ones to do that assessment? Because in some of those cases, maybe you are the best person to write that because you know most about the client presently. Um, then what does that look like and does the doc is the doctor okay signing off on what you've completed, right? And that the probably requires a process, right? So that the doctor can be assured that I'm signing off. You followed certain procedures, you pulled certain things to certain places, and, right? So we have to come and talk about that, right? But again, I'd ask, but how many people does that affect? Yeah. And if you have anybody in PSR or residential that doesn't also determine the therapist, do you have a social security assessment? I, you do it all the time. 
We have to. We have licensed people, right? Okay. So that we can we can do that for it. I don't want somebody in the paperwork to just tell the person that we do essentially clearly. So if you give it to the PSR. Well, we yeah, make it known to the program manager, or you know, you, you know, you're, you're letting the program manager know that this document needs to be completed pursuant to the statute. And so we can say that we do things all the time. It might not be a group home counselor that's doing it, but it could be the program manager, right? You know, it could be Angie, Kelly, me. They can review the case because all you're doing for Social Security is telling them, right. you know, I got a diagnosable. Same kind of stuff we do with the accounting, the duration. Right. So, right. so the point. assessment is not a, but it's clearly not a case, a care coordinator role. Well, but what about, and to go back to your issue, I think your issue is that therapist is gone now. The one who started the application is okay, no longer well, with well, so again, what? So here's the deal. Remember what I said to you before. You're the last person to get a pass, right? So if the therapist is gone, PSR MHSS, and it's just you and just them. It comes all the way around to it's just me, I'll do it. But what I hear Larry adding into the mix is if there's a clinician or if there's MHSS or PSR involved, they do this all the time. They have clinical people in their program that could sign off on it and get it done, no problem. So then you would say, oh, back to my little team dynamic, your team, there's my little handy dandy thing here, you would go back and say, hey, team, people, there we go, team, you need to be on the team, and by the way, here's the, the complete. And I would, you know, I would say what you're describing then is a clinical need. So they're done with therapy, but all of a sudden they have a new need. And some, we, do, we do assessment and evaluation. Specific need for this person, and what is, you know, get them over the hump is to have a duly credentialed person to do this paperwork so that the doc doesn't have to spend the time doing right. it, signs off on it, gets it out of there, this is a great thing for the client. We ought to be able to get that done. It's, you know, like right. if you need, if there's nobody else to drive them, I say that, you know, call me up, I'll, I'll drive them if I can do it. Or I'll, you know, so we're interested in delivering, getting the barriers out of the way for, for the client. So, I, now I'm not aware if that's a problem with, with our folks. I need to be some aware because I want to do some system right. shifts that, that are pretty easy to do. It doesn't sure. take us very long to do. Right, right. I, I, I share the same feelings with that. Okay. Um, I know the focus is on care coordination here. Uh huh. Um, but I don't think we can willy nilly just assign paperwork to people at, and care coordinators to be the last person to take it because. I'm willing to do a social security evaluation form, but I also have 30 clients or program and 30 or 20 clients or program 30 staff that I'm responsible for. So when we talk about it being a team process, if there's something that needs to be done, my understanding of care coordination is that we bring the team together and we figure out where we get the paperwork done. It may not be one individual. It may be that residential does uh, the piece that talks about their daily functioning. It may be that the therapist does the support piece because they have the longer relationship. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't, I but think, that's, I that's what I was saying, Angie, is that's the process. Is 
care coordinator looks around the whole team and says, okay, team, that's not what I'm who should, when I who should do it? The care coordinator says, oh, yeah, Dr. Clark, I'll take this to the therapist, and bam, it's your responsibility to do it now, therapist. Because I'm telling you, systemically, people understand that case management was pulled out of therapeutic services, and therapists no longer do case management. Right or wrong? Don't, don't no, that's fine, Angie, but them. let me tell you, I, I myself delivered the training that was clear on what ancillary time covers, and I'm clear about what case management is as far as what therapists used to do, and they're not doing it anymore. But the form for someone to get a disability based on what they understand they're diagnosed with, that's a clinical function. So it's not even case management. So, so the issue is... So we go back to role clarification and who does what. That is a critical mm -hmm. systemic issue right. that needs to be addressed before we can move forward. I think the issue is defining that function versus a case management yeah. activity. Because in, in the world of we were everything to everybody, right. we would traditionally think of benefits management in the Social Security management right. as a case management thing, right? This is, this is just a product of that I'm history. And so it's hard to, to pull those things out. But you, the only way, the, the way out of the hell is is to is to define the function of the form. If it's if they have to fill out parts of it, like what's my address and all of that stuff, anybody in the team can do that. But the individual could do that. Yes, right. We, we would want to say, let right. me help you fill your form out. Right, right. Somebody in the team or the care coordinator says, you right. got to start to fill this out. Now we need a person that can do this part of the assessment. So we need to get that. Right. Can, I, can I just continue to put you in the aisle for a minute? Just perspective-wise, as a residential service provider, when we pulled out the case managers, which is what they were called at the time, you know, the message to residential staff was, and our schedules changed, so we, we were coming in and things were closed or blah. The message to our team was these guys were going to help us do this paperwork, do all of this case management stuff, because we were taking that hat off. Mm -hmm. um, now, what I'm hearing is that's kind of a reversal. So we have been relying on these guys to help us with that paperwork. We have been, they're the hub of the wheel. We, our direction has been let them know everything, work with them, you know. Right. But that kind of paperwork stuff has come out of residential because we were told you're not to do everything. I don't know what that means, that kind of paperwork. What do you mean? Um, you want to help me out? Well, I, I think that my understanding might be a little bit just because it's social security related issues. So anything related to benefits, so like Medicaid benefits, things like that has been a care coordinator's responsibility. I think where this is getting shifted a little bit is because it involves an assessment, which is clinical. So that's not something that you should yeah. be doing, but we have, because I know that I can write it up and put it in the doctor's box with a note, send them an email, let them email, and they will sign off on it and it gets done. And then I don't have to worry about it, because that's my way of just getting it done. And that's what they expect. And that's what they expect, because it's just a way, because a lot of So again, it, it sort of comes full circle. So right. if you don't have a therapist 
and you're not connected to PSR or MHSS, um, and you're asked to do a clinical assessment for which you would have sign off like a doctor, and there's nobody else to do it, then yeah, the care coordinator says, well, okay, it's on me. However, if you have a situation where the individual is connected to any one of these other people, and it's a clinical function, I think the point has been made several times, how do we define and differentiate clinical function or function of any one of these team people? So, so an individual says, oh, I need help, um, my car broke down, I need help with that, right? Well, so the um, residential counselor or the, the, the you know, therapist is gonna say, well, that's partly why they say, why should I be in the team meeting if what you're talking about is how he gets around in, in, in his vehicle, right? And so the point is, you then have to say, okay, well, if you need help with your car, who's gonna help you with that? Do you have a natural support? Do you need, what can I do? Can the care coordinator do something to help out there? They might, they might do that. You'll ask the team, who can help out with Johnny in his car because he can't get to his appointments, right? At the very least, the whole team there can brainstorm. But is, is the therapist gonna say, well, here, let me give you money for a coat, you know, bus token? No, of course not. So we're not asking people to do things that, they, that, that aren't in their area, but we are saying let's all be more conscious and aware of the pieces that we own that fit into the larger context of that individual. So yes, it's social security and it's benefits related, but it's a clinical assessment. And if you're the therapist, see you can't, and this is what it irritates me, you can't have it both ways. Well, I'm just a therapist, I only do clinical work. Okay, well here's clinical work. Oh no, no, that's paperwork, I don't do that. Are you nuts? That's ridiculous. It's a clinical assessment. Therefore, you would go to whoever the person is who's available, who knows that person clinically, whether it's a therapist or MHSS or PSR, say, hey, can you get this done? We're under a time crunch, right? And they need to respond with, yes, I'll get that done, I'll have the doctor sign it, whatever, right? And your job is to track it, right? So if it falls through the cracks and it takes some time, right, then yes, you should be responsible to say, oops, I dropped the ball, I'll go back and check with so-and-so, right? That's your role as a care coordinator, coordinator, right? But I think your point is, and we do have to do some work on this, Angie, is to say, okay, who has what piece of it, and how does it make the best sense to do it? But you cannot, and this is what we used to do when we were all things to all people, or it was a department of one working with an individual, you used to do everything. You can't do everything anymore. Not only is it bad practice, but it's not reasonable to expect either that you do everything for a particular client. Because what happens when you leave? What happens? That is then the antithesis and completely opposite 180 degree position of sustainable. It's not sustainable if you are that person's everything and then you leave to go somewhere else. What happens? They'll drop out of service because, well, that person's leaving. What am I gonna do? I don't like that new person. They don't know me. They don't know anything about me. And actually, they don't. Why don't they? Because when you leave, you take all your information with you. But when there's a team in place, backup, redundancy. We all know the individual. People will come on and off teams regularly. So, internally, have a challenge, which is to define clearly who owns what piece, or how we actually, I'm even here, we gotta go to step one, which is let's define what pieces are. 
Because apparently, if it's a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, it's paperwork and a care coordinator does it. Which is nonsense. Yeah, here's the deal. You don't get assigned tasks. You don't. And that's another thing. Oh, we don't have to know because it's on videotape. But you don't get assigned tasks. Your job is to facilitate the assignment of tasks. And yes, you will take on tasks that are appropriate to your role. You will information share, and you will service connect and refer. You will do those things. You will document the process. You will en engage communication. You will build the team. You will do outreach. Those are all the things you do as a care coordinator. But you are not assigned tasks. And if anyone tries to assign you a task and there's an issue, you tell them to speak to me. And I will be happy to tell them exactly what I'm telling you. Better yet, we can post this on the web and they can watch it. Yes. <laughs> Just refer them to the link. Oh, just send it in the email. How about that? Just send the link. Watch clip. this. Just that yeah, watch the clip. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's another bad thing, right? People can clip this and look, Joe, freak out. You know? <laughs> that's great. On YouTube. <laughs> on YouTube. Is this copyright protected? <laughs> okay, good. what our model of outpatient therapy is. Maybe that's the next branch to really go through some service model revisions, probably, right? Because really, they've been going through service model revisions as we pulled things out. Right. We pulled out case management. We're pulling out clinical medical services. I mean, so we are slowly refining, I think, what do, what services they, they provide, and how do they determine how to provide them? Once a week therapy, which to my mind is the traditional in your once a week, unless you're high intensity, it might be twice a week. If you're once a month, or if you're, you know, once every three months, that means you're kind of on your way out, or you should be anyway, right? But that's why you have high caseloads, is because if you're only seeing people once a month, for three, well, then you need a caseload. Of course, a person has, you know, a person has a group, they probably have a number of people. Right, so they might just be in groups. So we probably have to work on refining that, Deborah, that's a very good point. <coughs> but I want to make something clear. You are not assigned tasks, but you are obligated to help educate people about how those tasks get done, particularly within this context, right? So it's not just about saying, I don't do that. Remember, your job is to sell this model in the department. That's why we're here today, and that's why you're getting all this information, and we're thinking it through and giving you some tools. We'll right-size our allocation of resources, but you guys are the ones that sell it. So just like you have with your clients, I understand this is hard. You say to your team, everyone, I understand this is hard. It's a new way of doing things. And most of you who have 10 years with the department, 12 years with the department, you can leverage that. Say, you know what, yeah, it's kind of hard. 
Let me join you in your frustration. I get it. It's tough. But here's why we're doing it. And that comes back to you being comfortable with and understanding completely principle-based service delivery. That we are doing this because what we do engages those principles at a basic level. You've got to make that argument. I'll give you the backup. They can say, Joe told me. You can say that. But you better in the next sentence say, he also told me, though, we need to work together and figure this out. So let me let me sit down with you, and here's how we'll, we'll address it. So you got both. You can't just say, it's not my job. And I would say the same thing to the therapist. I would say the same thing to the nurses. Same thing to everybody. It's not just, I don't do that. It is. How do we make sure it gets done? I am reminded back when we did this in the beginning and I started talking about this and um, this whole process of doing things. And um, somebody said in one of my sessions, <laughs> I forget who it was, um, somebody said, you mean we're going to have to collaborate with each other internally? We're going to have to talk to each other? Why can't I just get it done? My answer is yes. You will have to talk to each other internally. And you know what else that helps with? We start to figure out where the resources are in our own department. Because how many times people still do this, I'm sure. Oh, I didn't know we did that. Oh, really? You've got that resource? When did that happen? Yeah. You know why you didn't know? Because everybody's in their silo. They're comfortable in their little, you know, I do this. This is my job. Paperwork? No, no. That goes over there. So I, wanna, I want people to understand that what I'm proposing here is not just a service delivery model. It's also changing our service delivery system. We're becoming better informed. And yes, we will be working even more efficiently. It doesn't seem like that in the short term because, well, it's a pain in the ass for people to have to be accountable. It just is. But I have to tell you, I live my life every day accountable. Tim Hemstreet can pick up the phone at any moment and give me a call and say, what the hell's going on in your department? And if I don't know, I'm one of those people that's going to need an SSDI episode. <laughs> yeah, but I won't ask care coordinators for that. So what I want people to understand and what I need to we're doing this not just to better serve clients through our, and this is why system of care principles is, is, is the way I want to go here, is it's not just about principles related to the client and engaging with the individual, it's also principles for our service delivery system, for our agency. We've got to change the way we do business, we have to. If we don't, we are going to go away. It's that simple. So. You're not assigned tasks, but you are responsible for making sure tasks get done. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think we definitely need to have more of these trainings for our therapists, friends, ER, everybody else to orient them and get them on the same page. So we'll be doing that. Problem solved. This is a great team meeting. Okay, we're moving forward. Any other thoughts or questions, concerns? about the tasks <clears throat> or about how the system is working in general.
Let me ask, how do you all tend to respond when you get assigned tasks? Do you just do them? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's easier. Right. Pick your battle. Yeah. That goes back to the education piece is that they just go on through and still remember the stuff in the dorm. So sure. The, the switching the programs and the learning aspect. So the flip side of that is are there, and, and Angie, you mentioned this a little bit, but tell me more. Are there places where um, people feel like they're they're running in a deficit because the things aren't getting done? Or that they're, I mean, so when you say we, we don't do that anymore, but we have to wait for someone else to do it, are you? In the residential world, are you experiencing any delay in things getting done? I don't. I don't think we are. No. I mean, okay. I think the group homes work <coughs> very closely with yeah. with these guys. And actually, our staff, the group home staff, I mean, you guys are encountering some resistance, if you want to call it that. Um, we kind of had to flip flop. We were told, no, you don't, you're not supposed to do that anymore. You need to talk to the care coordinator. And so our staff were backing off, going, oh, I better call Tristy to see if I can do this or not. So it's been a mind, it's been a paradigm shift again. <clears throat> To look at care coordination versus case management, and I think with with, with all the paradigm shifts, people are starting to get confused now. Mm. And it's just kind of like, am I supposed to do this or not? I'll do it either way, but can we? Just well, I wonder if it's not because we haven't had that many paradigm shifts. But I wonder if it's more people are very much defining their job concretely. This is our sec second huge paradigm shift mm -hmm. in two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, when you're talking about getting all these people on board, it's not like, okay, we're going to do well, it like this. But, right but this, my thought is, I wonder if it's that people really define their jobs very concretely. So therefore, when we introduce this idea of process and process facilitation, which is not as concrete, it leads to what your point is, which is, oh, am I doing this or am I not doing this, right? You took it away from me. Yeah. You're and horrible. Then, right. <laughs> that explains the. Yeah, well, not because sometimes my mind gets into 
get that or even sometimes you get the opposite where uh, you know they are carrying a caseload of 60 so when you approach them about you know they the other of the team oh no I like out like outpatient uh -huh. they're carrying a caseload of 60 so some of that might be like oh well I don't you know I, they got too many other things going on I mean 60 clients and, and those kind of yeah, things. So you get the opposite also. Once a month. Let's I mean let's change the state are all 60 well does the team Well, that, okay. it does, yeah. So, so the team, you, they should know that. Friends, right? They don't. They do. They know that. That was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. See, so I think what you're coming up against, this is, again, the challenge of PR coordinators. And because this is internal to the department, right? So if I were, if you all were in MHSIDS, the problems would be the same. You'd just be dealing with different providers, right? So you're experiencing the same problems that most people experience when it, when it comes to pushing out this process and getting people to buy in is, it interferes with their, you know, um, sort of their silo, their protected world that they only did this thing in, and now you're coming in and saying, no, no, but do it differently. Check with the team, talk with the team, right? And that's challenging for some people. But also, internally, because we've reallocated, and some people say, oh, I used to do that. Um, I still could. That means you're doing it. Fine, you do it. And then I want to be sort of acting out, which is like sabotaging what they say. Right? I'm not too passive aggressive, right? That's a big, yeah. <laughs> That's a big barrier, that's a big barrier to team function is when people are passive aggressive. And here's what you have to do as a care coordinator. You gotta call it out. And that's what can be challenging. How you call it out is incredibly important, right? So letting people know and engaging with people about what their role is and their functions, orienting the team to a mission and the vision for the client and what the individual says is their vision. That's what this is about. So one tool you have is immediately depersonalize it. This isn't about me, the care coordinator. This is about the vision. This is about the individual we're serving, right? That's one tool. Another tool is to really say, you know, you've done this before. Thank goodness you're here. Your history is really important. So you could probably advise the team best as to how we should tackle this. You've engaged. But you've got some tools, and it's your responsibility as the care coordinator, as the facilitator of the process, to do that. I hear the frustration, and I think we do need, and we're answering that today, more training and more clarification with people about this. Um, but we do have to be clear, this is about anything we do, it's about serving the individual. I cannot tell you, as we've, as we've developed this process across the department, how many times I hear people say, they didn't know something was going on in the department, in some other part of the department, right? <laughs> that was going there for years. Oh, I, I didn't know DS worked with kids, really? I had no idea. I've heard that four times in the last two months. What? So it's important you both present the challenges. Hey, we've got to figure out a new way of doing business, but also, as you were pointing out, the opportunities, right? What's a challenge or a threat could also be an opportunity or a weakness could be an opportunity. Let's make sure that we leverage your expertise on the team. Let's make sure that we all know what's going on in the department so we can get people connected more quickly, right? 
what I hear people saying is that they do define, people define their jobs very concretely. And productivity, once again, people are just, I just want to bang my head into a wall until it's bloody. Productivity is not a measure of someone's job performance. It is a measure of utilization. If I cannot accurately report how our staff are being utilized, then I cannot accurately ask for more staff. So people have to realize that productivity is not the sole measure of whether you get fired or get kicked into your job. No one, because I've been here two years, eight months, three days, no one, no one has been fired for productivity. No one. They have not. I'm just going to push my luck a little bit here. Take it off the performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Accountability is an important aspect there, but no one's getting fired because of their productivity. Yes, they do get credit, and yes, by the way, they know they get credit for team meetings. That was decided long ago. Yeah, they know. So as a care coordinator, you say, yeah, but you get credit for five weeks, so come on over. I'll have staff. You know how many feathers I've had to unruffle from three that feel like they're being pulled by the net as to what they have to do? Have I not put in overtime doing that? So you're telling me that people know you're an S2. I don't even know what the heck you guys, you're S2s? I have yeah. absolutely no idea. Everybody's very right, aware. Okay, so everyone's aware you're an S2. And as an S2, you cannot tell anybody anything about relative to this process. Because you're an S2, and I, what am I? What am I, am I, what am I, an A? E3. I'm an E3, I'm an E3, so you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> I feel like the 10 guy on Stratego board, you know? I can, there are spies out there. A spy can kill me at any minute. But wait, so really, now here's the thing I want to talk about then. The process, the organizational status then to me says we have people focused on the wrong thing. Right? I mean, so here's the question. And for you as care coordinators, for me as the director, how do we get people to focus on the right thing? Because if you're focused on, you're an S2. I'm sorry, it's Tuesday. I only talk to S2s on Thursday between 5 and 8. I mean, if that's what they're focused on, then we got bigger problems. It's not just them. These guys, we had to support you guys a lot when you first started. Because when you okay. were being told you were the hub of the wheel and you had to lead meetings, you guys were freaking out. I'm just an S2. I'm just an S2. Right? Really? So it, it okay, went good both point, ways. Good point. It's pervasive. Yeah. It is in resume. It may not be in all cases, but it is in resume. Well, and before I, I even started. No, I'm agreeing. Yeah, what is, I'm sorry, before go ahead. Before I even started, I had a supervisor saying, well, good luck. And I was like, oh, all right. Thanks for that motivation. Are you serious? Absolutely. Okay, get YouTube ready. I'm about to rant. I mean, <laughs> get my, where's, where's the camera? Shock it off. I mean, holy <laughs> crap, this Perfect. is ridiculous. So, 
question one, how do we get people focused on the right thing, right, and not the, because here's the deal. You are the facilitator. You are the process facilitator. That means you are responsible for how that process works, okay? If people want to say that that means you're telling them what to do, fine. Then I am telling you, as an S2, you can tell anybody what to do on that team to make sure that that team vision and mission is met and that that individual gets what they need. That's the authority you have. And again, if someone has a problem with that, they can come talk to me in all my E3 glory. And they better kneel and I guess bow and scrape too because I'm an E3. And that's just nuts. But anyway, so we're going to work on uh, how we get people focused on the right thing. Before we engage any solution, which in terms of systemic, which would be, well, the answer would be just to make you all E3, I guess. Right? I mean, who was that? So cool. Right. That's, not the, that's hey. not the problem. People lose focus on the client. That's all. They, they lose focus on what the job is, and the job's about the client. The process is about this, this process, the team is about the client. It's all about that. And we lose focus because of difficulty right. of change, confusion about roles, lack right. of education. Guys have been sort of as we've moved into this, and it's not a perfect process rolling it out. So some right. of that, who knows? No, that's a very good way of framing it, Larry. You're right, and I and I we need to do a better job than of orienting people, getting them to focus on the work of the individual. But that's what you all as care coordinators need to do also, and you are absolutely empowered to do it. It's a responsibility to do it as the process facilitator. Well, and I think the emphasis needs to be on. Process is, is fluid and it's flexible. So as we were talking about in our group when we were going over this form, like if there's one thing that that we've learned doing this care coordination job is that it's going to look different for every client. It's not going to be the cookie cutter. Okay, this is this is the, the day we're going to have this meeting. It's going to be every you know X amount of days, and this is what their crisis plan is going to look like. It's going to be different for everyone. You know, not everyone has given us the pushback. You know, I work with one particular therapist that I can think of that is very open and, and very much so bought into what care coordination is doing and in fact refers a lot of her clients and simply states that she enjoys having another member on the team to help facilitate right. the process so it, it has to be the emphasis on you know she gets she gets it she gets that her job is not always going to be to just meet with this client once every two weeks or once a week or whatever it is that there are going to be some other things that she's going to be responsible for that may not fall under the category of individual therapy just during that session. So that's right. what people right. harp on is just the concreteness like we've talked about. Right. I think that's what the emphasis needs to be on is it's right. a flexible thing. Right. And then, well, so two issues. One, people that find their role is concrete. Two, you lose focus of the client or the individual, right? Those two things you need to work on and address. And you all need to feel comfortable um, being able to address that on your team. Um, we'll figure out how systemically we need to address it um, with respect to um, training, information sharing, or, you know, some knocking heads together, I guess. I mean, so, you know, and, and, and as we try to help change that system, systemic stuff, people not only to know where it's not working, but where it is working, too, right. because those are assets to this process. They will help us all sort of bring other people into the fold. Right. You know, the, the thing I guess, I, I, you know, one of the things I try to keep emphasizing is that it's not a perfect process. And it's, and it's like anything. Connecting mirrors is like recovery. 
because recovery doesn't just blow out into a nice thing. It's got ups and downs, uh, pitfalls, confusion, times get better, times get worse. So, so we're in that process. But I think we're committed to trying to figure out how to identify those places where we've got to intervene. It wasn't a, not perfect. We didn't have it all figured out. We were going with it, changing it. We're learning some things. Right. But keep in mind that those people that it's working well with, because that'll be an asset. There's something about that. They could actually help. Maybe they're part of the education, or when they're in the, the training for the summer, they could be a huge asset to us. Right. Helping people to sort of grasp it. Okay. Can I tell you something? Ask your coordinators. Firewood target team, right? You need to be able to not take things personally. You need to hold yourself above um, the, the personal attacks and the sort of losing focus on the client. Enough to be able, you're so married to the problem that really you can engage anybody in any way that they come at you and, and bring them into the process and engage them in, in a productive way. That's really. When you, when you can do that as a care coordinator, you're at the top of your game. And it's hard, it's hard. You have to reach out to your supervisors, you have to reach out to your fellow care coordinators to really deal with that. But it's really, really tough. If you can keep your focus on the process and the client, you can steer everyone else back there too. But it takes time and it's hard, no question. And I will tell you, what you all are experiencing Career, it's it's the way that I think makes the most sense for our clients, our individuals, and families that we serve. So it's tough, and so I, I want you to recognize, or at least let you know that I recognize it's difficult for you what I'm asking. Frankly, what I'm requiring, not not just you, but at everybody, it's difficult, it's hard. If it were easy, well, everybody would do it. It's not working with these with these serious mental illnesses and with the serious challenges they have. It's not easy. So you do need to take um, notice of that. And you have to be comfortable that as long as you adhere to the process, the principles and the guidelines, you're never going to have anything but support from me, from Deborah, Jeannie, Andrew, Larry, Kelly. You'll have the support. Got to make sure that you that process lives in every part of you, that it's in your DNA, because that's what's ultimately going to save you and the client. 
make sense? It's a big ask. It's a huge ask. We are changing service delivery in Loudoun probably in ways that other places haven't even thought of yet. Certainly in the public sector. I will tell you, most places outside Virginia, and it may come to Virginia at some point, they contract this stuff out. This is what the cloud providers do. This is incredibly unique and new that departments and government are doing this work. And I mean to make there's no barrier too big, too tall, too immense to overcome, go around, or through. There isn't. Because if there is, I get calls right away about let's contract it out. Let the cloud providers do it. Because they don't have to deal with stuff like X2s and S3s. They don't have to deal with stuff like FMLA and you know um, a year and a half to take to get you know somebody terminated. Private providers don't have to deal with that stuff. Which is true, they don't. But my response is, we as a department, with a continuum of services, which is what we've been building since we got here, and I'll probably a couple other changes or restructuring. But what we've been trying to do since I got here is develop and make clear we have, we're not just a collection of programs, we are a continuum of care. Because people move up and down, in and out, through. And it's the most efficient way we can coordination, as I told Jeannie, when I asked her to take over this branch, is going to be the way to do it. No question. This is going to be the biggest part of what this department does is care coordination. It's going to be huge. The more you hear things like what happened in Bath County with Senator Reed's son, the more people are looking to CSDs and local departments to say, what the hell are you doing? How are you not letting these get these people connected to services? You know why? The issue isn't that Senator Dee's son had a bad emergency services worker. The issue is he wasn't connected. He didn't have a team. Senator Dee's didn't have a team he could call. Gus didn't have a team he could rely on. It wasn't there. The one thing that prevents these tragedies from happening is connectedness. How connected are people to what's going on been studied up and down. Mass shootings and bombs, all, it's always, it always comes down to connectedness. Our challenge with the service delivery system is how do we create connectedness in a way that's all-encompassing? It's essentially giving every individual that comes through us their village. It's the village. Everybody gets a village. And people say, well, that's just impractical. That's But I encourage you to, because this is exactly what you need to say to people. Exactly. Everyone relates to what happened in Bath County, everybody. Oh, they're blaming CSB, oh, budget cuts, oh. Yeah, well, we have an answer. And I've been telling it to the commissioner, the assistant commissioner, and everybody. We as a CSB, we as a local department, we're ready and able to step up. 
But we're not going to do it the way the state tells us to, because that's just too risky. We're going to do it the way it makes sense for our community and for what we have already in place here. Local control, local authority. Isn't that what works on your team? Local, they're in charge. You're in, we make decisions together. That's what has to happen. So play it over and over again. And we'll know who's, we'll know who's hitting on it, won't we? <laughs> Who's going to be watching us? Joe's latest training, a thousand views. Um, all right, so uh, and now, well, we've just ran the agenda off. I'll, I think we're, I think those cough drops are kicking in. Um, all right, hang on. Oh, I've got a. Hold on, I've got a. <coughs> So these are all, again, um, elements uh, in here. And this is what we'll take through everybody else as well. This is the person-centeredness and talking about you know, recovery-oriented concepts um, there. Then we go through implementation. You all have talked about some of your challenges there. And then transition. As we talked about before, transition is a tough thing for our individuals. We may not have, we may have very few people that are in transition, or they may be in transition for a very long time. And I think that's where we have our challenge, right, is are they in transition and they're fine, or should we move them out? I mean, that's where we've got to figure out the line, right? Is, how does that fit? But yeah, I think we've probably got a, a, a number of folks that, that are probably in transition and may be there for a while. As Sean points out, and all of you know, depending on the service, there's nowhere for them to go. Well, where are we gonna transition them to, right? I mean, that's, that's a huge challenge. Right, um, okay, well, that's, we've done that. Uh, so we were gonna do a role play. Now, you all did Suzanne last time. We have a new one. I don't know, it's tough to do a role play in 30 minutes. Um, This is the old one. We're going to use this one for the other group. Um, what? Right. Oh, well, thanks. But, uh, you know, first of all, I don't know if they all want to be on TV. But, no. Um, no, I think, um, gosh, I think we're too bad. We ran out of time. But uh, I'd rather not see you pass the line. Um, plus, we can talk about the right here. Let's let's pass this out. It might seem familiar to people. Um, we can just use this as some discussion uh, here. Yeah, one of each. One of each. <clears throat> Go ahead and take a minute to read through the write-up. Sure, Deborah. Sorry. Everybody get enough. Get one of each, guys. One of each. One of each. Everybody go. Who needs a, a part? Oh, okay. Hold on. Um, this will get. Go here. 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 
So let's talk a little bit about how you might, you see the, you'll see the roles there describe various folks involved. There's Chief Instructor Nancy at the top. All right, so 
facilitating this team. Based on what you've read there, what might an agenda look like? What might an agenda look like? So you've got your the welcome, introductions, right? What's next on your agenda item? What's been going well? Strengths-based approach, right? So what do you look at in terms of that, right? Well, is it strengths? there going on. Good, that's a strength. What else would you say? Support of family, another strength. She's got some natural support there. The team looks like it could be really uh, strong there, okay? Other strengths you might see. Just some recognition and stability. Right? That's good. What else? There are friendships there. Okay. Any other strengths? Mm -hmm. Yeah, taking care of herself, right? Using a CPAP machine. Good. So it's important. So why is it important to put those strengths first? Why? Sets the tone, but why else? Based on this, this write-up here, what are some challenges that might come up? Okay, there's stealing behavior. Self-injurious behavior, right? So when those things come up and you start talking with the team, you can immediately go to the strengths and successes list and say, well, let's see, she's got friends. Could friends be helpful in helping deal with the stealing behavior in any way? Right? So you've got a way for the team, and this is important, because the team has to feel like there's um, uh, useful outcome of the meeting. You all know this, right? They're not going to keep coming back to team meetings if there's not a useful outcome or if they feel like, well, what's the point? We never resolve anything. So having that list of successes and strengths right there, you go immediately to that. And you say, okay, the stealing is a problem. The um, um, self-injurious behavior is a problem, right? What are some other challenges or needs that you might think are there based on the read? Mom. Mom's a challenge, right? Based on what you read there. Tell me, why is mom a challenge? Don't we have that a lot with some of our folks? We've got caregivers, family members that are, they tick us off. They won't let us do our job, right? They don't think we can do our job. They think they could do everything better. Why don't you just have your kid live with you then? Right? Let's see. Another element of good facilitation, you gotta have the hard conversations. You have to, right? Don't be afraid to say, yep, that's exactly what I think sometimes. You have to. If you don't, 
Whenever there's something left unsaid in the facilitation process, it becomes a hidden agenda item. <coughs> and you lose control of your process, and the team loses focus if everybody starts competing related to the hidden agenda. One of your challenges as a care coordinator is to recognize when there's a hidden agenda operating and call it out. Okay, what's the real issue here? That's when you get, well, you're an S2. Okay, well, that's an issue. I can't change that, so it's not an issue we can address right now, but thanks for letting me know. Back to the process. Even just doing that sometimes can bring the temperature down on the team and get people to engage, right? But my point is, have the difficult conversations, because if you don't, it leads to a hidden agenda. My best example, I was with uh, Loudoun County Public Schools doing a, a training outreach. Room full of 200 social workers, and whoever they are over there, but uh, like uh, school social workers and um, IBS people, and whoever the, I can't imagine. 200 people. And I said, okay, folks, how many of you know Loudoun County Mental Health? Oh, all hands. How many people have had a great experience with our department? You would refer over and over again. About half the room. How many of you had a horrible experience and you never, ever want to see us or our department? Not one hand went up. Not one. I said, oh, come on. Really? No, no one here has had, we have no issues. No, my department's perfect. Really? One guy just went. <laughs> <laughs> Out of 200 people, what? Yes, sir. He's like, well, we do have waiting lists. Hell yes, we've got waiting lists. And we don't have Spanish-speaking therapists. And we're not always available. And we tell you we're the experts. And we tell you to screw off. And, yeah, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, that happened. Yes, it happened. If we don't have that dialogue, though, you're not going to trust me as a partner, and I'm not going to trust you as a partner because you're not being open and honest with me. So part of your goal as a facilitator, as a process, um, uh, sort of process manager, is to make sure those conversations happen. That's why you have to be secure in your role, and you have to know that you've got the backing of your supervisors to go in there and do the thing that rarely gets done, which is have an open, transparent conversation in a large group setting with people other than our department. Because that's also hard, right? People don't want to have the, you know, am I embarrassed by the fact that my department's not the most favored place in the world for LCS? No, I know it isn't. I get it. I'm doing what I can, but if I have a partner engaged who can understand my problems and help me figure out a solution, then Great. So right, so mom, an issue. And here's the thing. Most often, we're not going to talk about that. It's easier to just, oh, let me just appease mom. I'll take her call. Okay, sure, I'll make sure. Goodbye. That's what we typically do. And if the care corner kept doing that, fine. Or we might push back and set a boundary with mom. But then mom escalates. Right? Oh, we don't want to talk about the team. Look out. This could be explosive. Got to talk about it. So you're right. That's an agenda. Self-injurious behavior, the ceiling, and mom. Now, if your marriage is a process and it's in your DNA, how do you engage mom? How do you engage mom who's, huh? Put on a prank. Put on a prank. Right. 
is how do you present to mom the challenge, right? She wants to be so involved as to correct everything that happens with her adult child for whom she does not have legal guardianship. And who wants greater independence and who acts out anytime mom asserts it, right? How do you deal with that? Process facilitator, how do you deal with that? Come on, take a stab. You gotta get comfortable brainstorming here, folks. There's no wrong answer. Versus saying to mom, you know, mom, you really can't give us that kind of direction because she's an adult and you don't have a you don't have guardianship, so we really can't listen to you. What? You can't listen to me? Are you kidding? I'm her mother. I know her better than you. I'll show you. I'll show you. <laughs> what? Now listen to me. I'm calling Tim Hemstreet. <laughs> like that would never happen. <laughs> Seriously. So you've got to be careful, and, and you do have to take the time to think about it and talk about it. Just I mean, I mean thanks to Deborah's great experience and years of work, you could spit that out really well. <laughs> but the, the problem is for you folks, you know, it takes some time to get comfortable with this. And what's interesting, you know, and we still haven't figured this out in the field, you know, care coordination is this weird hybrid of things. Like it's not clinical, right? not clinical work, but it's not paperwork, busy work either, right? I mean, this is a problem because we have a hard time being able to um, help people get clinical licensure for it because it's not clinical work. But the truth is, you've got to be clinical in this business. And we're dealing with a system, right? How many folks are social workers here? Social workers? How many want to be social Um, but my point is, as a process facilitator, you've got to be able to, that great statement, oh, it's on video, um, so it's recorded, that great statement has to come, you've got to be ready and on your feet to sort of say that to the team and frame it in a way that invites everybody to talk about it, right? Because the, op the other option is you escalate it, and then mom gets unhappy, and there's discord on the team, and then we lose focus, right? So, framing it that way is helpful. What else could we do? So now we've got the agenda, we've done strengths, we've got the issues we're dealing with, and we're coming up with some intervention solutions. Remember, it's a 60 to 90 minute meeting, and that's it. So, what could be some solutions as you work with a process with, with the team? Around any one of those three things. Healing, self-injurious behavior, and mom's well-intentioned. But I know my process facilitators here know that. So how would you deal with that? What are some interventions? Thinking about everybody who's on the team right there. So I think, um, 
because of that, you're, um, you know, you're aware that you're going to say, you know what, I'm just going to let me have that one-on-one, -on -one, right? Which I think is a perfectly appropriate way to do it. Um, I do think, though, you might also um, consider at times having it in a larger group. If you feel you can way, right, such as like Deborah did with the mom situation, in a way that doesn't create emotional reactivity. I mean, there might, it might be there anyway, but, you know, so if the client's in a, set, in a team meeting and the individual says, yeah, I want a new probation officer, and the probation officer sits right there, right? Well, you say, okay, um, let's talk a little bit about that. What's troubling? And then, of course, if the probation officer gets defensive, hey, remember our team meeting, one person talks at a time, or, and you find ways to focus on the individual, right? He says you can park issues. You can park issues, absolutely. Let's park that for later. So, and that's, I think you're right, Kim, that's a very effective way of doing it. Here's the, the danger of that, though, is it winds up that you, in those one-on-one -on -one conversations, you get, I think, inadvertently assigned at times too much responsibility, right? So it's about, it becomes about you and not about the team. So that's the, I think, the, the flip side of this, but I, I think you have to weigh the, the cost benefit there. Um, Again, I don't, I'm not saying that's the wrong decision, it's the right decision for you, and I think the fact that you can weigh, depending on the team, depending on the individual, goes back to Sean's point, is we're individualized and flexible. It's gonna look different in each, you know, uh, in each um, team. And that's something else you'll have to get used to, because a lot of folks are gonna say, because you might have the same folks on different teams, and they may, and this has happened in Wraparound, actually, where individuals are on, I'm on Johnny's team, and I'm on Susie's team, right? It's the same care, care coordinator, but wait a minute, we were on Susie's team, you didn't do the whole post-it sticky thing, and on Johnny's team you did, right? And so what happens is team members will start to sort of wonder, say, well, why is that, right? You've gotta be able to take on those questions, it's different, it's flexible, right? My problem is in the community, they, they have that experience, oh, well, but they don't know what they're doing, it's different every time. Well, yeah, that's the point, it's supposed to be different, individualized. So, um, example, but I think you're right, Kim, that you know you make that decision based on yourself, what you're comfortable with, so you've got some great supervision from Deborah um, about it, but I, I do think you want to you use the power of the team whenever you possibly can, even though it could be difficult. You know, kind of like uh, trying to ride a, a horse without a saddle at times, I guess. It can be a little out of control, but you're going to get there, right? But anyway, so uh, it, it, that's the challenge, right? And you've got to get comfortable taking on that anxiety for yourself and for the team. That's the real issue. Can you hold that at that space as you work through these things? And then, of course, so I'll zip through here was step two there. You have the meeting, right? Everyone has a chance to speak. You can put things in the parking lot, as DJ mentioned. Um, right? Schedule the next meeting at that time when everyone's there, which is good. Um, and then, of course, make sure you follow up with sending this stuff out. Now, that seems like a lot of work, doesn't it? At any given point in time,
on your caseload of 30, you've got probably 15 a month, 15, 20 a month, maybe, that are doing their meetings, depending on how they're spread out. Um, it's gonna be a lot of work. I think that would be dramatically cut when we have our collaborative care platform, which we haven't quite heard about, I don't think. Maybe? Maybe. Oh, but look, not much time to talk about it. <laughs> Tune in to the next episode. <laughs> um, we're actually, Dean, were you at the last meeting? You were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks pretty good. Um, we are developing a, a combination patient portal and Facebook application that is a virtual team space. We're actually going to be presenting something. Uh, it's, this is at a working model by July for the Institutional Care Conference that Kim, you, and Jennifer are joining along with today. Um, the idea is that we provide people connectedness to the process 24 7. One of the challenges, and you all is that between face-to-face -face meetings, we lose momentum, right? It's particularly if it's three, three months out, right? Now, draft round does it monthly, so it's a little less. It's, it's, it's a higher intensity, of course, because it's monthly. But if it's three months out, boy, it can be tough to maintain momentum, especially when you meet, and it seems like, wow, we've got issues to address, and then month one, month two, month three, right? So that's a challenge. Keeping people connected to the process is really important, particularly with face-to-face -face meetings. So we're developing a tool that's gonna be first uh, beta tested with wraparound and support coordination. And then in November, I'm hoping we will roll it out to the entire department. Next slide, next. So what is this? This is a web-based application where you will sign on. As a care coordinator, you will have a home page that has a dashboard with all of Everybody who you've signed up on this platform. And you'll be able to see at any given time who's communicating on that team, what they're saying, what the issues are. You'll be able to post your treatment plan and your crisis plan for anybody and everybody on that team to access in a secure environment. There'll be a mobile application so that if our clients have a, a smartphone, they will have limited functionality, but they will have their contact list their uh, access to, to talking to folks on their team um, on their mobile phone. The idea is that you're going to be connected or they're going to be connected to their process and their team in a way that you can monitor eyes on 24-7. So with your 30 cases and you sign on, let's say everybody signed up, right? You'll have 30 cases right there and you're gonna see which ones are active, which ones are not. You'll be able to communicate with everybody on the team simultaneously. So if uh, Johnny's homeless and we've got to figure out what to do and have a team discussion about it, you can send out a quick note to Johnny's team. Everyone gets an email notification, uh-oh, something's wrong with Johnny. I'm going to reach out. We can coordinate when a meeting's going to happen. If an emergency meeting has to take place, we can set that up on the calendar. It'll have um, limited at first, We'll ask providers to be members on this uh, platform, and they will be on there, and you'll be able to make a 